Hey, what is going on, everyone? Welcome to the Over the Cap podcast. It's March 25th, 2023, and this is Jason Fitzgerald. You can find me on Twitter at Jason underscore OTC, uh, or you can email me, Jason at overthecap.com. As usual, I am joined by Nelly the Bunny as I am back in my usual little podcast spot here since my son has decided he's done with Fortnite for the evening. Um, he's probably going to get done sometime soon. It's almost 9 o'clock right now as I'm recording this, so I'm sure he would have been uh, passing out soon enough. Uh, Nelly, you have anything? No, you got a treat? You're good? All right, Nelly's good. <laughs> so, uh, beer of the night tonight, nothing exciting. We are Michelob Ultraing uh, right now. I am sure you can hear the excitement in my voice as I am uh, drinking this one tonight. Uh, but we've decided to go on a uh, little bit of a low-carb kick for just a, I don't know, little short period of time. I think I was uh, creeping up a little too much on the scale, so I just want to pull back for a little bit, and uh, we'll get back into some normal stuff in about a week, I think. Um, just a just kind of a quick little setback here, but you know, I'll I'll add back stuff in um, by next week. I just got to be a little bit more cautious of uh, having days where I've decided that I am a little on the hungrier side and just uh, hanging out with my daughter and eating Oreo cookies or something. So anyway, we're, we're doing the, the low-carb beer for one week, maybe two weeks, and then, then we'll kind of be back to normal, and I'll just uh, keep it a little bit more um, under control, I think, with uh, some of the other things I'll be eating here and there. Um, had a little bit of a busy week, I guess, doing a couple of uh, different podcasts and stuff. So I was on uh, Troy's show, Cap and Trade. You can check that out. I think he uh, broadcast that on YouTube as well, um, so you can check that out there. Uh, I did a Badlands um, doing some Jets talk yesterday. Uh, so you, if you're a Jets fan and you subscribe to that, you know, check it out. Uh, if you don't subscribe and you're a Jets fan, check it out and see if you know what they offer is up your alley. Um, so I was able to get those kind of things in. I did a radio one too. So busy week. Uh, also did a video. You guys can check that out. Um, if you don't know, we do have a YouTube channel that once in a while I happen to use. Um, so this week I did something on Lamar Jackson. I tried to make a poison pill offer. Figured that would work better there than on the podcast. So you guys can check that one out. Uh, you can just go to YouTube at, or go to Over the Cap. You can check out there. I have an article there that links to it. Um, but if not, I mean, you can go to YouTube. Just look up Over the Cap or do a search for Lamar Jackson poison pill. And uh, you can find it there and you can subscribe to the channel. I'm going to try to do something on trade value. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about that probably tonight too, uh, but I'll try to do a little something on trade value on there too and just some different ways to measure it, and then we'll see. As things come up, maybe we'll use the video format for a couple of different things, um, just kind of time permitting and what seems like an interesting topic. I, I just know from a little bit of the feedback that I get for the couple of videos that I do, I think people find the numbers a little easier to follow with if I have like an Excel sheet up on the screen. And I can understand that. I, I can understand why that makes a lot more sense than, you know, if you're listening in the car and talking numbers and when you get into specifics on the just a little bit of math or anything, you know, it, it can get kind of lost in translation um, somewhere in there. So anyway, you can check it out and subscribe if you're uh, into that kind of stuff and just have it in there if anything uh, pops up that might be of interest to you. Um, I was going to do free agent stuff this week, but there's still a couple of deals out there that I don't have details on yet. Um, you know, we got Hardman with the Jets, Aguilar just signed with the Ravens, Bobby Wagner tonight with the Seahawks. Um, 
Dalton Schultz was finally official a day ago, I think, two days ago. So there's a couple of stragglers out there. So I, I kind of am hoping to kind of get those details first. Um, and then I think do a deep dive into how free agency went. Look at players added, players lost, value added, value lost. Um, you know, look at 2024 and start to get an idea of who really pumped a ton of money into 2024 and, you know, kind of compare their position where they are now with 2024 as to where they were at the start of the offseason, which I think for our purposes probably should be February. And this, this year things got underway a little bit earlier because of the Derek Carr release. So next week I'm going to try to collect all that stuff. I'll do some posts on that as well. Uh, so people can follow along with the posts, and then I'll add more thoughts to it probably in the podcast next week um, when we go over that. But I think where I wanted to start today was the Tunsil extension in Houston, just because it's such a it's such a great job. I think what his his group has done there, you know, he represents himself. Um, you know, he has a group of advisors and same guys that do Roquan Smith and whatever else. Uh, they've just done a great job, you know. Wh- whether it is um, their dealings, whether it is the Houston Texans organization, whatever it is, this is like a model that is just completely ignored for some reason in the NFL world. And this really should be the model that's followed for every single player, I think, in the league. Uh, you know, I mentioned it last week that. I think I mentioned it here. If not, I mentioned it um, on Twitter. You know, well, I know I mentioned it on Twitter, but I I think I mentioned it on here last week too. You know, I I said this is kind of like the the under-the-radar version of Kirk Cousins that made Minnesota people upset. I didn't really get it. That's a compliment towards Kirk Cousins, not a negative towards him. But this is that same kind of contract um, in terms of It's short-term, so the short duration allows you to, you know, really up your value. Um, Now, Cousins had certain clauses in there that helped him, but in both cases, you did have structures that were very advantageous for the player, and we'll we'll talk about that in a minute. But, you know, instead of getting into this fight over guarantees, and I don't get this. DeMora Smith was out there again complaining about the owners not giving guaranteed contracts. You negotiated the CBA. You negotiated two CBAs. If you want to complain about the NFL owners not giving guaranteed money, look in the mirror. It wasn't a fight. What what fight was it from you that now you're going to go and complain that they're not giving fully guaranteed contracts? I mean, that's nonsensical. You had the ability to put your foot down and say, okay, union, this is what we're fighting for. Union, we're putting this money aside so you can survive a lockout for a year. We're going to actually have a real war chest. We don't use it. It gets redistributed out. No, instead it was, you know, we'll give a 17th game for a little bit of bump in pay and we'll, we'll make the off-season programs a little less intense. Now I'm going to go out and I'm going to complain about it? No, that, that's ridiculous. Anyway, this is the model that people should be looking at. Now, it's very different, maybe position by position. 
So you, you have to kind of weigh the trade-offs as to you know what you get and what you don't. But when you go back to when he did this original contract with Houston, and he signed this deal back in 2020, it was uh, three years, $22 million a year in new money, blew away anything that existed in the market at the time, you know, by a couple million dollars a year. And that deal was signed. And I said, wow, that is like one of the worst deals for a team. Like that, there was just, it was, it was as if there was no consideration given to anything at all. And I, I, I get it. You know, some of that is that organization that that's the way they are. But I think in hindsight, it's made me kind of also realize some other things, which I'm going to talk about too, which is also an area I think that is very important for players in the future and for ways that you can try to do, you know, try to maneuver um, around the league, you know, to, to leverage your position into uh, better contracts. But, you know, when he signed this deal, it was $66 million for three years, $40 million full, $50 million injury protected. Um, you know, that that was not the new guarantee. Take $10 million bucks off that. Um, so $30 million full, $40 million injury, um, $13 million to sign. You know, the day it was signed, it was like, that's an awful, awful, awful contract. Like, it was just financially made no sense at all for Houston. Other than the fact that they, they were kind of leveraged out because they, they got into this by making a bad trade at the beginning by just trading away so much to bring him in. But that three-year length, they took a contract that was bad and they made it worse and they made it even worse again. And that opened the door for him to get another extension um, you know, just two years into that one. You know, when, when you look at this, it, j just to give you an idea as to um, how this all worked out. So the first year of his contract in 2020, he had the full salary that year guaranteed. So $23.85 In the second year of that contract, I believe he had the full salary in that one guaranteed as well. That was sixteen one five. Let me just make sure I have this right. Whoops. Let's just do the numbers, make sure we're right here, because I'm reconstructing a deal. So that was forty. All right, that was the full amount. Then he had another ten million that was injury protected in twenty twenty two. So he got that ten plus he earned, you know, another seven point eight five on top of that. Now in 2023, we go in there. Now we're up to 32.4 million guaranteed this year, 18 guaranteed next year. So basically, since 2020, the only number on his contract that has not been guaranteed, I believe, was 7.85 million of his 2022 salary which they ended up converting to a signing bonus anyway. So it did become, in a sense, guaranteed because, again, structure matters and they had a great structure for him. Now he's going to have 23 fully guaranteed and 24 fully guaranteed. And then 25, he's going to have a $10 million guarantee that is effectively guaranteed at signing. You know, it, it becomes guaranteed 
<coughs> on the fifth day of the league year in 2024. So, again, never had a fully guaranteed contract on a piece of paper, but he ended up with a deal that was basically 24 guaranteed, 16 guaranteed, 10 guaranteed that because of structure vested to about 18 guaranteed, 32 guaranteed, 18 and a half guaranteed, and 10 million guaranteed. And who knows what'll happen then? The overall cash flows on this have been tremendous. So here's what he earned in new money if we start everything in 2020. 13 5 in 2020. That was the last year of his rookie deal. 1615 new the next year. 1785 in 22. Now it's 32.4 in 23. 18.4 in 24. 21.35 in 25. And the same in 26 if he gets there. That gives him a one-year annual value of $29.65 million, two years of $23.75, three years of $26.6 million a year, four years $24.6, five years $23.93 million. That is an awesome number. The sixth year, it drops to $23.5, but my assumption is he'll be extended again as long as he's playing okay. You know, I, I don't like to usually project these guys to extend again, but when you, you kind of look at the structure, you look the way he plays, and you look at the position he plays, I would say there's a good chance that that will happen. In any event, I mean, it's just an awesome job. It, it is the, the complete antithesis of Smith with Dallas, who was kind of the premier left tackle at a point in time, and Dallas got this awesome deal with him. Now, obviously, you're dropping things back um, to the money that existed back in 2014 when he did that deal. But you look at the money that he made, it was basically $9 million new, a million new, $10 million. So $20 million new for the first year, next year 10, next year 10, next year 10, another year 10, another year 10, 5, finally a year 13, 5. Um, and then this year he got reworked when he was going to earn 13.6. Took the drop down because, you know, he's been hurt. But, you know, th this is a structure that is, it's like the gift that keeps on giving. Outside of a couple quarterbacks, I mean, the, the only player in modern times that has probably done it as good of a job, and in part, it's because of what the Rams just decided to do with too many guys in the roster. It's been Aaron Donald where he signed a long-term deal that had these same type of big uh, cash flow numbers up front, but then leveraged the Super Bowl into getting the Rams to rick, uh, rip apart what was the, the back portion that was supposed to be advantageous for them. You know, as a team, and I understand why teams do three-year deals from time to time, you know, you might be saving in some cases, you think at least you're saving on a guarantee, um, you might be saving on some money up front. You know, if you if you give more years, sometimes you have to give more of a guarantee. I don't really see that happening in, in his first deal that he had. You know, they basically gave him the guarantee that you would get on a five-year contract. And that's become a little bit more of the norm. But, you know, it, it, if it's not going to really drive down that three-year value, and, did, you know, maybe maybe it did a little bit here over what he was really looking for. You have to be aware of the positions that these guys play. You know, if you're playing on the offensive line, if you're playing quarterback, 
Those are players that you typically don't cut when they're productive. And they're typically players, if they're productive, that perform into their 30s. It's different if we're talking a cornerback. Now, if you can save yourself some bucks by doing the three-year deal, it's probably worthwhile because you're probably not going to extend that player for year four, year five. Same goes with most wide receivers. Most, Most probably edge rushers kind of fall into that category too. But when you look at a couple of these positions where the guys do have long careers, you have to negotiate longer term deals with them. And if you don't, at the very least, you have to be aware of the structure of your contracts. You know, so this goes back to the beginning of this. So we go to the Tunsil example here, you know, and we look at his deal. And this is how I reconstructed it. The original deal had a $13 million signing bonus. Everything else was base salaries. His cap numbers were relatively manageable. 14-1-19-4-21-1-21-7-5. The amount that it would have cost to cut him in 2023, let me make sure I have my years right on this, would have been $3.25 million. Obviously, he wasn't going to get cut, and the cash is the same, but... Uh, the difference is that he doesn't really have any leverage at that point outside of being a productive player, um, you know, but doesn't have crazy leverage because his cap number is reasonable, 21.75. Um, you know, it, it's not the it's not the end of the world, what it is there. Now in 2022, I'm sorry, 2021, they go in there for salary cap relief and they have to convert a bunch of money to a signing bonus. So that time around, they converted $18.4 million to a signing bonus, dropped his cap number to 9.29, and his number the next year rose up from 21.1 to 26.2. That's a big number. You know, and... For whatever reason, and this is where they made their first mistake, and I know that there are players, or I'm sorry, there are teams who don't get into doing the void years, whether this was their decision or whether it was his decision, smartly saying, I'll convert, but I'm not throwing a void year in there, you know, because that should have been done probably at the beginning of the contract, just to have it in there, just to be on the safe side. Is why you see more and more teams doing that now. They went the route of, well, we'll just prorate this one over three years. So next, the next year in 2022, because that cap number is so high, they go in there and they're like, oh man, we got to restructure again. What do they do this time? This time they convert, let's see. 16.8 million, 16.815 million to a signing bonus. Drop his cap number from the, that 26-ish figure down to 17.7. But now his 2023 cap number is 35.2 million dollars. Cost to to trade, cost to release 16.7. 35.2 it is an unmanageable number, especially in light of the Texan salary cap. 
So they leverage themselves into just being able to be taken over a barrel into a new contract. And they still did the same thing here with no void years, no anything to really help them out. Like this is this is the kind of player you use that stuff for. You know, we talk about void years and we talk about Philadelphia sometimes doing smart things, even though that they're some of the stuff they do is stuff that I'll criticize with other teams. It's because really where they go overboard most of the time. They they went crazy on some of these cornerback contracts. That I'm not the Darius Slay. I don't get that one at all. Um, but you know that most of their stuff they've done has been on the smarter side. You know it's on positions where you probably will extend the players, so you're not wiping yourself out with dead money. And it, you can be proactive enough with your extensions to where, you know, you, you don't get into a situation like this. You know, if they had let him play at 35-2, the cost to tag him next year would have been 42-3. I mean, this, this contract was just an absolute mess. Now, if they, at least in the second time frame, if they had put voids in this thing, I'm just saying, if they if they put max out voids in here, let, let's see how that would have looked instead. Let's just take a look. I'll divide that by five. And let's see this one here. I'll divide this one by four. I'll just say they did it the one time. You know, they, they would have been down at a 28-9 number this year, which would have been a little bit more reasonable. Um, now, they, they, could have, they could have banked that out a little one year further if they wanted to. Let me just see what that would have been. Let's divide that by five. They could have gotten that down to 28-ish with the structure that they had. But, you know, had they started this from day one, they could have done better with it. And... This was also another one where the case is if you start taking a look at your entire roster instead of just looking at one individual player, it probably makes more sense to take and restructure some of the other guys, even if you look at them as like not having as big of a cap number, not as much to save versus, you know, maybe instead of um, having to restructure the entire contract. You know, the entire salary, you're only doing half. You know, just to put yourself in a little bit of a better position overall with the way you do these deals. But this is why, you know, I, I, I like to say structure in these contracts matter. It, it's something that's been completely lost in the NFL over the last decade or so. There was definitely a time where the contracts were designed in a way through the signing option structures where players, even as their skill level declined, were able to keep jobs in the NFL often without having to take pay cuts. You know, they, they might get treated like Kenny Galladay was treated last year, but those contracts were able to, to leverage, you know, the teams into keeping them. It, it's a complete lost art. You know, when, when you negotiate these deals and you're just like, well, all right, guarantee, guarantee, guarantee. Focus on what makes you the most money over the course of a career.
What protects the most value in a contract? Sometimes what protects the most value is not a guarantee on a piece of paper. Sometimes it's the way that the contract is structured that you're making it just incredibly difficult for a team to ever even threaten to move on from a player. And worst case scenario, you know, you get traded. And this is the thing that I, I think I've I've missed too often with some of these deals. I, I know I've talked about this last year, much more so. But this is the other thing, and this is why some players, as they enter the final years of their rookie deals, probably should be putting their foots down more and more about money to try to force a trade. When you get traded to these other teams, they don't care as much about the total, not the total value of a contract, the new money value of a contract. The new money value on a contract is still very important to a team um, when they're the ones that drafted you and they feel like they have all this sunk cost and they, they're like, well, you know, we've got your rights um, on the option year and then we have your rights on the franchise tag and you know what, so if you're not going to play ball with us, you know, screw you, blah, 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 whatever. You get into like these fights, you trade the guy away, the contract is identical. They still have the same franchise rights, option year rights, everything else. They don't care. They don't care as much. Because part of what you're trading for is you're trading for a contract. You're not just trading for the player. You're trading for a contract. Maybe I'll segue into trades in a minute here with this. And this is one of the things I was going to talk about with the uh, Aaron Rodgers when I mentioned about doing a video on trade valuation. It's mainly going to be focused on that. But you're trading for a contract. And when you bring in a player that has years left on his deal... You know, I'll go back to Tunsil's deal. Let me let me pull up his his original contracts with the Dolphins here. When the Texans originally brought him in, he had two years left on the deal. One was two million and change. The other one was ten three five. So when they did that deal, that was crazy, right? Sixty six million dollars in new money at the time they signed it. But if you go back and you look at what they envision as their total investment here, they're looking at this that they got five years out of the player on this contract, not three. You factor in all that old money into the deal because that's the total financial investment for the team. And the effective contract value for them on him is 15.7. So they're looking at this as like, okay, we're bringing in a player who we value as being worth $22 million a year or $20 million a year. Whatever you want to say is top of the market for a left tackle. That is where we value him. We're, by making that trade, we're getting that player for only 15-7. Even though on a piece of paper, our deal looks terrible. When I go and I look at it, I'm saying this is 15-7. And look at some of these market movers. When we go back and we look at real market movers at a lot of these positions, they've come off trades, Right? Deshaun Watson, fully guaranteed, comes off a trade. Russell Wilson, $49 million a year, comes off a trade. 
Tyreek Hill and his inflated 25 or inflated 30 comes off a trade. DeAndre Hopkins number off a trade. AJ Brown off a trade. Now what positions? Let, let's just keep running through them here. We've got Tunsil at tackle. I don't think we have anybody at guard that would qualify for that. Defensively, um, you know, we've got DeForest Buckner. We've got Leonard Williams. Edge rusher. We had Khalil Mack, right? For years, the, the NFL, the edge rushers couldn't break through the $20 million number. The market was 19.8. The logical next number is probably 20. 20.5. He gets to 23 and a half. Why? Because the Bears didn't look at that option year as a sunk cost to them. It was more of like a bargain year. So, okay, fine. If giving you 23.5 and new makes you happy, that's fine because for us, that investment is less. That, that investment on him would have been, uh, let's see, what would that have been? Khalil Mack. He was a 23.5 on six. And they brought him in seventh year, would have been 13.8. So let's just add that together. So that's a seven. You know, so to them, you know, that, that one's not as much of a discount, but that's at 22. You know, it's a little bit less. I forgot they, they only had him on the option that year. They, did, they didn't get him on that. But it, it still, it drops the number. You had Jalen Ramsey with the Rams. He was the guy that made the $20 million at corner. You know, that, that was a hard one to get to. You know, at the time, that was a real hard number, but they got the two cheap years in there. So they're, they're looking at this as probably like a 17. Safety, Jamal Adams. Got that ridiculous 17-5. But again, it's... It's a lower total investment for them. I don't know if I put Roquan Smith in that same category, but again, it's a player off a trade. So players can't get the free agency. Your best players don't get the free agency. But if you put up enough of a stink, you can probably get traded. And if you get traded, you have a much easier time of scoring that big contract that makes everybody kind of take pause and say, whoa, what is going on here? And, you know, it, that moves the market. So if there's things that the, the, the Players Association should be pushing agents more towards or just getting more data on, it's what is the advantage of the three-year contract versus a five-year? Because for those star players, they still kind of get signed to five. So what's the difference between a three and a five or a three, a four and a five? What, what's our difference in outcomes that we're seeing with some of these deals? And how much have the trades really inflated the market? And how do we get more players to get the leverage to get traded? If that's going to be the case. Because once, once some people go up, the whole market pulls with it. 
know, it's only a handful of players that are such outliers that it doesn't impact the market. Most of the time, everybody gets pulled with it. So you want to create a system where you can pull as many players as possible along with you. Those are the things to be looking at. Those are the things to be studying. This is an example that should be studied. But instead, it's just like nobody pays attention to it. And it's just like, why aren't you giving us fully guaranteed deals? I don't get it. <laughs> so anyway, on the concept of trades, uh, there's been a little bit more talk. And I, I got some ideas for some stuff to do, I think, in the next couple of weeks as we lead to the draft. It may, maybe it'll just be kind of fun. Um looking at some of the different draft charts and some of the different um, stuff that involves trades. But you know, we, we get sometimes mixed up in the, the concept, I think, of trading for players and devaluing some of these certain draft picks and not really looking at the concept of trading for a contract. So you had a couple different trades that came down, um, player for pick trades, and you just try to kind of, how do you put values on them? Um, you know, like the Elijah Moore got traded. That was no surprise. Um, you know, the, the Jets, I'm sure, think that that was a third-round pick um, that they basically got back in the move-up. In reality, it's more like a fifth-round value. But there's a, a couple of different ways that you can measure that. And, you know, maybe I'll pull that one up in a minute. But the, the bigger one that you had was the Brandon Cooks trade out of Houston where Houston wisely picked up some of his contract. They trade him to Dallas. But then Dallas does a, a really interesting thing in that Dallas negotiates his contract down. So he was guaranteed 12. They kept that in place. They got rid of a per-game bonus. That's basically a wash. So he his salary this year drops from 12.5 to $12 million. All right, now that the Texans picked up six. He had more guaranteed. Um, they dropped him down to 12 this year. And as far as I know, they didn't give any concessions for 2024, but they dropped his salary down from uh, 16.5 million to eight without having to guarantee anything, without having to give any kind of early decision date. They were able to drop him down to $10 million a year on an average. Now, this is a player who a year ago signed a contract that was worth $20 million a year. So, you know, now we can debate about what Cooks's value really is. And I, I don't think 20 was the right number that the Texans paid him. But, you know, he's still been a capable receiver. And, I mean, if you look at a guy like a um, Allen Robinson, you know, he signed the prior year for, what, 15? Uh, let's pull up Robinson's deal. All right, my computer doesn't want to uh, work with me here. So I'm just going to assume Allen Robinson was 15 a year. I, I think he's right around that number. So I think a, a fair number that Dallas would consider would be that they're getting $15 million a year in value uh, for Brandon Cooks. Now, this was an a way to maybe exploit it a little bit, um, the salary situation that's there, because um, Houston was going to pick up some salary. So... He was probably a little bit more agreeable to doing this with his contract just to get out of there. There's really not a way to evaluate this from Houston's side because from Houston's perspective, this was just a total sunk cost. I mean, you, you can evaluate it from their side, but it was just dead money, basically. They didn't want him. He didn't want to be there. So anything you can get in return for him is a bonus because they saved $12 bucks by cutting him or by trading him. 
but let's look at it kind of from Dallas's perspective and let's see a way that we can do this. And again, I'll, I'll do a video kind of on this with Rogers, I think is the example. Um, but, you know, if we look at this, what do I think Dallas probably values him at? My assumption, and this is a little bit different than in the article that I wrote. This is just after thinking about it a little bit. My assumption is they think they're getting a $15 million value and they're taking a $12 million risk, right? The $12 million is the the guaranteed money on it. Um, I think their assumption is that they're getting more than that and that the market rate for that type of player would be 15. So my feeling is if we plug this in, their assumption is they're getting $15 million of value in the next two years and they're getting it at a cost of only $20 million. Now they give up, I believe it's the 161st pick this year in the draft. So the first thing that we're going to look at is that pick. And we're also going to look at pick number two that they, they give up in this one, which is, we'll assume it's like the 200th pick in the draft. Um, now I'm going to, I'm going to pretend that these are all in 2023. Obviously they're not. The, the pick is in 2024, um, that later one. So you, you have a, a delay on that. But when we look at our all-in cost on Cooks, uh, over a two-year period, it's $20 million, even though you know it's not fully guaranteed, but uh, it's $20 bucks. We are saving, with our two draft picks, uh, about $4.2 million and about $4 million. Now, I know there's replacement level costs. Um, you know, Cooks replaces one. The other guy, really, you might look at it and say, well, it's really only the signing bonus that you count because he's replacing another minimum guy on the roster. And you can do that, but I think when you you evaluate the trades, you're probably looking um, a little bit more at it th this way. But I, I can understand if you just want to use the signing bonus for some of these players that are later picks, um, you know. But basically, that that puts your all in cost on Cooks at just eleven point eight. Right now, the, the breakdown's a little different because it's Cooks is all in these two years, and now we're talking about a four year period on those other guys. But, you know, basically it means you've, you've given away $8 million in salary and you're bringing in $20 million in salary. So the net cost for Cooks is actually cheaper. Now you look at the value. So the assumption is $15 million in value per year. Um, you have a draft pick here. And how do you value the draft picks? Well, use the chart that Brad and I did. So the, the fifth round pick that they gave up would have a per, uh, assumed value on a blind pick would be 2.645 million per year. That would be the level of talent that you would um, basically be bringing in. Now, the first year, he's not going to be worth that. So let's just say he's worth a third of it. You know, it's about 890,000. Year two, he's probably worth it. All right. So you're going to have. 15 million for Cooks in 23, 15 million in 24, nothing in 25, nothing in 26, right? Because he's not under contract. Your draft picks, we're going to say we lose about 890 this year. Then we lose 2645, 2645, 2645 over the next three. Uh, pretending our sixth round pick is also this year, we would lose about 650. And really, that should just go all the way up to 750, which is the minimum salary. Uh, then we lose 196, 196, 196 over the next three. So you add all those together, and what you come up with is a net value of $14.65 million at a net cost of eleven point eight. That's a gain of $2.8 million for Dallas, which actually makes this a good trade for them. Um, 
but you know, relatively even, right? Over a four-year period, that's seven hundred thousand bucks per year. So you know, you're considering a minimum player is seven fifty. I mean, that's a pretty fair trade. Now, what happens if you know you don't get fifteen million in value, but he plays both years? You know, let's say you get twelve million. You know, then you fall by $3 million. And again, it's still pretty fair. It would be about um, an $800,000 a year loss, which is, in the grand scheme of things, that's that's a very even trade. That's closer to the value I came up with when I did the original thing, in large part because I was only looking at it as a kind of a one-year investment for them because I just assumed that second year was never going to happen and they were just going to value him as a 12. Um, you know, if he flops, then the trade is a lot worse. So then you, you put in the cost of 12. You know, your, your net cost at that point is only 3.8 million, but you're getting no value in 2024. And you're getting a you're losing value in 2023. Let's say he's only worth six. You know, that, then you came out bad. You're 13 million negative. Um, you know, that, that's an average per year of 3.3 million. That, that's a major, that's a major loss. So, you know, for this to work out for Dallas, Dallas needs him to be a viable player for them for probably two years. Um, you know, I, I would say that that's kind of the thing. And by viable means being a quality, like not a high level number two, but you know, in line with these guys that earn between 12 and 15 a year, I think it, as long as he produces at what you would consider the equivalent of a $12 million player on the market uh, over a two-year period, and you got him for 20, which is a discount, you know, again, what you lose between cost and value isn't terrible. Especially, too, because, you know, I, I'm, I'm taking this over a four-year period, and, you know, there, there's a little bit of a difference because the, the one pick is pushed out a little bit. But I would say on a piece of paper, this is a fair trade. You can say it leans one way in Dallas's direction. You could say it leans one way in um, the other direction, uh, the Texans' direction. But in general, I would say from the Cowboys' perspective, this is a very fair trade. I don't care what the Jimmy Johnson chart says. I don't know what it says or what it doesn't say. But, you know, th this is a fair, you know, in my mind, a pretty fair trade. Now, in the Elijah Moore trade, we have a... a different one that's there and let me just pull up the numbers on this so in Moore's case what you have is the Browns uh, give up I believe it's pick 42 they get back pick 74 and they bring in Elijah Moore at a cost of 3.35 million so it's 3.35 million for Moore uh, $5.7 million that they'll be paying the next draft pick. And um, they save $8.7 million on the draft pick they send to the Jets. So the net cost for Elijah Moore and this draft pick is only an extra $333,000. So your cost is next to nothing from a financial perspective. Your cost of the, the pick and Elijah Moore's remaining contract is you know, basically going to be even. Now, the question for the Browns is what value do you get out of Elijah Moore? 
Um, if Elijah Moore was able to play like the expectation level for a second rounder, uh, you would have an expected value on that player of, let's see, what would that be? I got to do that as a wide receiver. Uh, the expected return on where Elijah Moore was picked would have been a receiver worth almost $10 million a year, $9.9 million a year, give or take a little bit. So if the Browns are able to unlock that potential in him, I would actually say that that might be a long shot. But if they were able to unlock that kind of potential in him, this is a major win for Cleveland in the trade. So we already said their their cost that they're bringing in is next to nothing, right? This is basically a free acquisition um, by moving down in the draft. It's a free free thing. Um, their position doesn't change from a budgetary standpoint. If they get 9-9 value in 23, 9-9 value in 24, nothing 25-26. We're not getting into the, the exclusive negotiating rights and all that nonsense. The pick they bring in from the Jets should give them about 1-7 value next year and then five years, the, the three years thereafter. The one that they sent out, um, they lose 2-3 this year and they lose about 6-9 every year thereafter. These are blind picks. You know, it can change based on position. But when you add up all those numbers, that gives them a net value gain of $13.8 million at a cost of next to nothing. So you have a total, um, you know, the difference between your value and your cost is $13.5 million, which works out to $3.4 million a year that you gained by doing this trade. Now, what happens if he's not that good? Say $6 million. Six million, you still have a five, seven million gain. What if he gives you three million in value? You're about even. So why do these numbers come out like this? And the reason is the contract matters because they only have a cost for him of $3.3 million for two years. So that's an average of $1.675 million for the next two years is what they're going to pay for a player who, as long as he gets to his second contract, um, you know, probably, probably your worst case scenario is this one that I just talked about, which is $3 bucks a year. And that's a break even because they saved themselves money on the draft pick and they added a player in. And if they are able to get that higher end value for him where he does work out as a number two receiver, you know, a number two slot guy, and he gives you that $10 million in value over the next two years, this is a massive trade win for them. You know, it's giving you an extra $3.5 million basically to spend on other players on your team. That's the value that you received out of this trade. So I think this is a trade that's pretty much kind of a home run for them because, you know, the, the only way it really works out and really negative for them is if he gives you no value whatsoever, or let, let's just say the minimum value, let's say 750000 I don't know what the next year's minimum even is. Let's call it eight hundred. 
you know, basically special teams value. You know, even then, you're only down like 1.185 per year over a four-year period. You lose 4.7. It's not great. Why is that loss not that big? Because the drop-off from pick 42 to 74 is nowhere near as big as people want to make you believe that it might be. There's a drop-off. You know, would I rather have the 42nd pick or the 74th pick? I'd rather have the 42nd pick. But it shouldn't, you know, it, it shouldn't cost you the 74th pick and a player to get there. Now, I get it. The, the Jets were sick of him. The, the Jets had given up. You know, the Jets have an interesting coach. Um, they really do. You know, Salah says a lot of the right things in public. He's definitely a player's coach. Um, you know, I think some of the guys, they really love him. And he says the right stuff. But it seems very clear when you fall out of favor with him, I mean, you very quickly get in his doghouse. Elijah Moore, Denzel Mims, Mekhi Becton. And I'm not saying these guys didn't deserve it. I, I don't know if Moore deserved it. But, um, you know, he very quickly kind of turns on certain guys. And, you know, you kind of create these situations where you have to get rid of the player. But, you know, if the Jets really even thought that he had any potential, you know, a potential to be a three, they just paid Braxton Berrios eight million bucks a year. All right. And they they had a bigger role in vision for Elijah Moore than Braxton Berrios. Now, they cut Berrios this year and obviously they traded more away, but they still would have had a bigger role for more than Berrios. So you, you would have to imagine, certainly going into last season, the Jets valued Elijah Moore at more than $8 million. Or what, what, let, let me see what they did, Berrios. Was Berrios at 6 or 8? Maybe I'm overstating how bad that Berrios deal was. Okay, Berrios was 6. I'm sorry, they, they guaranteed 7. Um, but he was at 6. So, okay, so he was at 6. Um, you know, now he did some special teams and whatnot there. So let's just say that they, they, they saw the two of them as similar and Berrios only had the advantage, um, you know, the six because of his special teams. So, you know, more would be a $6 million, even at that level, you know, you lost out, you know, your, your numbers at that point really should have been something like the, um, Let's see. What what should you have gotten for something like that? Um, you probably you did need to give up a pick. It's not like you didn't. Let's see. What pick would you have had to give up? You know, a fair trade at that point. Um would have probably been giving up. Now, I, I don't have the Jets' picks in front of me, but the, the fair range would probably be somewhere between like the 140th pick in the draft and the 160th pick in the draft. Somewhere in there is where the numbers would balance out if they really valued Elijah Moore as a $6 million receiver. Now, I know the Jets have a, a completely different way that they look at things. I mean, this is one of those trades where this is probably an advantage for Cleveland because of the way that they think. Um, you know, versus the Jets. And the, it's not just the Jets. There's plenty of teams like that. But, 
you know, the, the Jets really love having those higher picks and they, they really devalue those lower ones. So, you know, th- this is a, a prime opportunity for a team like Cleveland to try and extort value um, out of a trade. But, you know, realistically, this should have been something been something like 160 and Elijah Moore uh, for number 42. You know, that that would have and that, that's assuming the Jets saw him as a six million in value. If the Jets really thought that he could still, you know, have the potential of a number two receiver. You know, there, there's no. Sorry, let me just put in the numbers there. There's really no trade at that point that makes sense. You know, if that's what you believe that he's worth, you know, you you basically have to get back the pick that you, you know, you had for him. You know, it would be Elijah Moore for number two. Now, obviously, they, they don't believe he's worth that anymore. I'm, I'm sure in that one. But, you know, they, if they think he's a $6 million player, you know, they, they should have been giving up like a fifth. Um, you know, fifth, sixth, something like that for him. Fifth round pick and you get a second. So, you know, that that's the way that that probably should have worked. But this is the way that you really should be calculating your value. You know, what what is your cost that you have invested in the player? What is the cost that you're saving by losing the draft picks? Right? So we're getting our net costs. And then what's our net game? What's our value on the players we're bringing in? What's our value on the draft picks we're losing? And evaluated over a four-year period. And I, I know for some of the, the draft picks, obviously, you can get into longer terms than four years. But I think a four-year period is a, a fair way to try to assess it. Um, so anyway, hopefully uh, I'll get some time, maybe tomorrow, if not tomorrow, at some point during the week, uh, depending on what the kid's schedule is like, just to go over some stuff with the Rodgers thing that I, I think is kind of interesting because his is the, the opposite example. His, his is an example... That is like the exact opposite of what I mentioned about Jalen Ramsey or Laramie Tunsil, where you're getting a bargain if you look at it over the five-year, seven-year period or whatever. You're looking at those old years. In Rogers' case, you're talking about a player who's probably overvalued relative to the position, um, you know, and it, you, you, you don't have a long term with him. It's not like these guys that you bring in when you're bringing in a Jalen Ramsey. And yeah, he's only got two years left on that deal. But you know that you're talking about a four or five year return. You know, with Rodgers, you might just be getting a one. And you're paying $60 million for that one. So anyway, I'll try to put a little video together. Maybe that'll be something a little bit easier to follow. Um, You know, but it's just kind of an exercise in the way that I kind of run through these things a lot of times. Uh, but you know, sometimes putting it down in front of you, in front of you, I think, uh, makes it a little better. And obviously you get a lot of different suggestions for different ways to do it and, um, different things that you can take into play. And, you know, you, and you obviously you can go into different scenario analysis and you, you want to break down, um, you know, your different percentile of outcomes, you know, outcomes of the draft picks being great, outcomes of the draft picks being average, outcomes of the draft picks being duds, um, you know, the players being great, the players being lousy, you know, different kind of things that you can come up with there to come up with, um, you know, your overall valuation on the trade. But, you know, just as a baseline, I mean, th- this is very easy to do. Uh, the trade calculators we have do a lot of it for you. 
um, just in terms of the the basic evaluation, more in the draft perspective of um, you know point in, point out, APY in, APY out. But you know you can factor some other things in um, you know with that as well. So we'll go over that maybe in a video format, and we'll see if we can get some uh, discussion on that in the future. And maybe if Brad and I uh, update the draft book, maybe maybe we'll do some things um, with that as well. All right, let's get into questions here. And as usual, I'm behind on emails just to let everybody know. So I will hopefully um, be able to get to most of those tomorrow. Oh, one thing before I forget, we got I got this fixed for most of the people, but uh, there have been a couple of premium subs that lost their access. Uh, they, we had an issue with WordPress, um, just something there, and a, a couple things basically just uh, just got a little bit crossed up there. If you are one of those people, email me. I'll make sure that you are back in. It's only a handful of people that uh, it seemed to happen to, but it did happen to a couple. And so I was able to fix that for the people that reached out. So um, just in case you're listening and for some reason you went to log in, um, you know, and it said login's not valid or expired or something, just let me know. I'll get it fixed um, and, you know, see why that is. All right. Let's take a look here. Okay. Let's see. Um, Podcast questions. Uh, Derek, this is not a podcast question, but <laughs> uh, he wants me to update the Detroit Lions logo. I, I already know that I, I get uh, a lot of people that bug me about that. I don't uh, really go too crazy on updating the logos. I'll try to talk with Nick about doing that. Um, all right, let's see here. Cameron, could you give a quick analysis of the Eagles' compensatory picks? They can only receive four picks but have nine qualifying players. Do you have, expect any of them to move up after playing time? Uh, can they get a net value lost pick? Um, Nick would be better to ask about the net value lost. I don't pay as much attention to that. Let's take a look at the compensatory stuff for the Eagles here. Draft, compensatory picks. Let's see. The Eagles lost a lot of players, obviously. Um, you know, so they, they will clean up, but, uh, let's see if any of these guys can jump. Eagles, Eagles, Eagles. All right. So Hargrave is going to be locked in at a three. So I would guess that. The two linemen that they lost maybe have a chance. So the four cutoff line that Nick has is at 11 a year. Um, the guys that they have right now, let's see. I think Nick projects some snap counts in there. I would say um, the tackle that went to Tennessee probably has the best chance because he's at a 9-7. And I don't think he... Did he play last year much? No, he didn't play at all, right? 3% of the snaps. So, 
he's a guy that probably has a chance, if, if, and I would imagine he'll be their starting left tackle, to where his snap count should go way up. Um, you know, does that bump him higher? I don't know, but I would guess that would be the guy that you'd look at as an outside chance as a four. Um, Gardner Johnson right now is at a six. He's at six five million and probably played a lot last year. The Chiefs cut off his six at eight. That guy was probably a fifty percent. I'm gonna say no. That one probably won't rise. So I, I would guess maybe there's an outside chance that um, you know one of those fives becomes a four. Of the the two fives that they have, maybe one could become a four. Um, but I would say more likely it's the Titans one. Um, yeah, because I I think when Nick does this, I think he projects out the snaps based on last year um, to, to just get those initial estimates as to uh, where they would go. So I would say that's the only player that can probably jump. Um, let's see, digging through lots of junk. Uh, okay, this is one I have to answer. This wasn't a podcast question, but I, I'll mention it anyway. So this is just a question about uh, Carson Wentz. Um, Surprise for the commanders that the uh, 23 cap was the same before and after Carson Wentz was cut. Expected to see it increase. The reason for that is whenever these these players have um, certain types, I guess, of voids or whatever, and though Carson Wentz's didn't. I was going to say maybe it did. Uh, Carson Wentz was probably a very similar cap hit as to his dead money. Let me just take a look. I, was gonna, I thought maybe it was a void year one, and we factor those all in. Let me just look at Carson Wentz. Let me pull him up, because I forgot. He's not a void. He's just a... should be voided out. Um, so he was 33-8 dead, and he was 26 on the cap. I'm actually not sure why that didn't change. I'll, I'll have to go back and look, because I, I didn't have that in there to where it should have done that. So I'll see if we have something screwed up. We we may have something that did not uh, did not pass through um, on his numbers properly. Uh, I'm gonna guess there there might actually be a mistake with him. So I'm gonna look there because that that should have um, I think that that should have been a change somewhere there, right? Because he didn't have anything. Twenty three. He had a 26 cap. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to look back at that one. I'll have to see if there was a corresponding move, um, which there may have been. That may have been the same day we put uh, Payne up as a franchise tag. Um, possibility, at least. I'll have to go back and look. Otherwise, maybe there was some glitch there and it just worked itself out, but I don't know why that would be. Uh, let's see. I gotta email him back. Chase. Let's see. Was wondering if there are any financial cap or other reasons why we don't see multi-team trades in the NFL like other sports. I don't know if the NFL actually allows that. Um, so, 
the closest there was to a multi-team trade, and they processed it as two different trades, they may have happened the same day or one day apart, was that um, San Francisco, Miami... Oh, who was the other team involved with that? There's another team that was involved with that, too. Um, you know, where, where they did a couple of trades at once. I don't know if the NFL allows it. I think it's because the, the NFL wants to see, like, A for A, B for B, C for C. You know, like, my, my theory on it is the, the Jets, part of this Elijah Moore trade is they probably offered Elijah Moore to Green Bay. Green Bay didn't want him. So they tried to find a pick that Green Bay would be interested in. And let's say it's this pick. Let's just say you did a three-team trade. Um, the Jets get Aaron Rodgers. The Cleveland Browns um, get Elijah Moore, and they send pick number 43. I think that was the pick, right? Or 42, whatever it was, 42, right? To the uh, to the Packers. Um, I, I guess the, the theory on that is even though you can connect the dots and see who is who and what is what, I, I guess the thing is, well, why are the Packers sending a pick to the Browns when the Packers didn't give anything of value to Cleveland in this trade? You know, the Jets sent Elijah Moore to Cleveland, but Cleveland is sending a, a pick to Green Bay. And then Green Bay is sending a pick to the Jets, or a player to the Jets. Like, I, I think that's probably the logic behind it. And I, I could be wrong, um, but I, I think that's why we don't see it. So I, I think there have been a handful of things that have worked out that way, but I think it has to be done in steps. Uh, Eddie, you made a comment a few weeks ago about how you don't necessarily have all the contract information for some of the minor aspects. Uh, maybe wonder, does the NFL release official cap numbers at any point that you can use to true up the OTC values for each team? Um, no, not really. Uh, so every now and then somebody will publish stuff that comes direct from the NFL system. Uh, that'll usually come through Field Yates or uh, uh, Albert Breer sometimes gets those and puts them out. Maybe once in a while Tom Pelissero as well will do that. I could probably ask some people to get them once in a while. Um, you know, usually we work off of stuff that comes on the uh, the Players Association has a, a public website that you can access their cap numbers. Now, they make a lot of mistakes um, from what I've seen. So, you know, same way we make mistakes, they're going to make mistakes too. So sometimes it's hard to, um, you know, cross-check because of that. But the thing that's difficult is that the the contract stuff is so fluid really all the time with the exception of probably the month of june and july um it, it's difficult to kind of cross check because the nfl might have more information than we have just for that specific date or the players association may have more for that specific date right now those both would have less so what I mean by that is you have a number of contracts that are agreed to in free agency. Uh, we're able through reports or our own um, connections that we have, able to find out the parameters of those contracts. 
Uh, we enter them into our system because 95% of the time those become the contracts. 5% of the time they change a little bit. And once in a blue moon, they're not even signed. Um, you know, th those all become the deals. So we put them in, but those deals aren't official. In some cases, they still haven't been signed. Like I mentioned uh, Dalton Schultz before. He signed, what, like two weeks ago? Now, I don't think we had his information, but, you know, it, let's say we did. If we just happen to have the parameters on that, we don't. We would have had them in our system. The NFL wouldn't because the deals aren't official. The PA wouldn't because the deals aren't official. So it's very difficult to compare those because of that. So I've done that in the past. I'll just throw in a, a, an adjustment to, to kind of try to get the PA numbers to match up with ours. Um, you know, usually the adjustments are very small, you know, less than a million. But uh, I don't really do that anymore. I just, I, you know, we say that the numbers that we have are estimates. And I'm very confident in the estimates that we have. So I usually just run with it. And if I see something that looks really glaringly off, I'll try to ask around to see what I'm missing. Like, what, what did I just completely whiff on? Or where did I make a mistake? Do I have a year wrong for a player? Oh, and speaking of that, that topic, I'll just bring it up because I got a lot of questions about it on Twitter and here. And I'm, I'm sure it's, it's changed by now um, on there. But there were a couple of questions that I got regarding two contracts. Um, the two contracts in question were Mike White of the Miami Dolphins and Jimmy Garoppolo of the uh, Raiders. So let me uh, let, let me start with the, the lesser valued player here. And let's see if they've updated this here. No. So I just look to see when the, when the site gets uh, kind of swiped. So Mike White of the Miami Dolphins has a contract with a bunch of incentives, right? We, we, we all saw that, the, um, you know, all these incentives that came out when the, the deal was first released. It was released as like $8 million a year. And people were like, what? What are you talking about? Um, the Dolphins, I, I think, made an error with the contract. They, they, they were basically trying to come up with a million ways that he could earn stuff. And that triggers in the NFL's mind, that triggers stuff to be likely to be earned because you're putting in a bunch of incentives um, under the same thing. They went in there and they had to modify it. So we, we had counted them as likely to be earned uh, because we had heard that he had just a bazillion, bazillion different things in there. So the NFL was going to uh, classify it as likely to be earned. They went in there and changed the contract around. They just had to modify a couple of things to make sure they would go back to not likely to be earned. So that's why we had those in there. The bigger one is Jimmy Garoppolo. Jimmy Garoppolo's contract, right? There, there was a hangup. We, everybody, you know, Florio, of course, was, a, it hasn't happened yet. Doesn't mean it won't, but maybe it won't. You know, the, the, the usual nonsense that, that comes this time of year with all the, all the stuff. And, you know, I said to people asking me about it, I think this has something to do with his physical because we've seen that happen a handful of times with players before and specifically the Raiders. And this is a big financial investment. So I think the Raiders had concerns about um, whatever injury he had, his foot, whatever it is. So I think the delay had to do with that. They did a different contract for him than originally stated. It's the same number 
they got rid of the signing bonus. It's all base salary. It is, it's not an error on the website. It's not anything that's wrong. This is what they did. The reason they did it this way is because if you give them a signing bonus, at least this, this is my opinion of it, they gave them a signing bonus, that's a sunk cost. That's a loss to you. If for some reason he was unable to play football this year, they'd be able to recover the money that just sits there in a base salary. So they ended up upping the cap number, I believe, because of that. And I believe that's what the holdup was um, about that. But I was told that there were some changes with some injury language or something in, in his deal. And um, my assumption would be that the signing bonus would be lost to them, but they have a way to recover the salary in the event that he can't play this year. Now, they can convert salary whenever they want. They may end up doing it, but uh, it, it is it, it is just base salary this year, no signing bonus. So it's base salary per game bonuses, workout bonuses. People say, why doesn't it match Spotrack? It eventually will. I'm going to guess tonight is the night. As Rod Stewart would say, tonight's the night, right? Uh, usually Saturday night is a scraping night, has been the uh, history of it. So I would imagine... Uh, by tomorrow, it'll be changed. If not, by sometime next week, it will match. Trust me. Um, so you, you won't have to ask that question again. But uh, I just wanted to mention it just because I know I got a couple questions about that. Uh, the other one I got some questions about were some Lions contracts. Um, the Lions did some deals. I don't know if they meant to do this or not. Uh, basically, it triggered what's called the 50% rule. Uh, essentially, what it means is salary that is... If your salary cap number in the first year of a contract is more than double what the second year's contract number is, they'll take that difference and they'll prorate it and they'll they'll knock down the base salary or the other bonuses for the players. So that's a, a couple of the guys that they did. So that's why some of the contracts look a little funky. I'll debate on the presentation on those. Um, the only teams I have seen really do that before have been the Buccaneers and the Eagles. And I know for a fact they've done it intentionally. So for those teams, I usually just put the money down as a signing bonus because it's an intentional way to get the contract to prorate. So like the Eagles did that with Fletcher Cox this year. They've done it with a number of players. Um, the Buccaneers have done it with a couple of guys. I think Baker Mayfield they did it with um, this year. That's intentional. So they're doing it in lieu of a signing bonus. Um, but they're trying to get that prorated treatment. I don't know if Detroit did that or not. So that's just why the numbers look a little weird. Um, one of these days, I'll try to put together a post explaining that. That's another one that maybe works good on a video as well. Uh, it's a really, really kind of minute detail in the CBA. It does not come up very often. Um you know, in fact, the in the last, other than the last like two years, I think the last time I saw it was the Colts did it, and I am almost a hundred percent certain the Colts just screwed up and didn't know the rule or didn't realize it was going to impact them. You know, that was probably like the two thousand and thirteen, two thousand twelve. I mean, years and years and years ago. All right, let's go to Twitter. Oh, this is a lot of questions. Oh well. <laughs> It's going to go longer than I thought. 
Okay, Black Gold, who is the most trade since Joe Douglas was hired and how big is Joe's lead over number two? I don't know that answer off the top of my head. Um, Douglas has done a, a number of trades. Um, I don't know if he would have the lead. You know, Miami's done a lot, I think, of trades. Um, you know, Rams have been very active in the trade market. Um, Seattle's been somewhat active. Chicago last year was moving some guys. So I don't even know if they're number one. Um, but they have to be up there. Jeff, the Eagles are looking at a $21 million uh, dead cap hit for Lane Johnson in 28 by adding more dummy years. Is this the new vision of the Eagles to add these huge dummy years? It's not a new vision. Um, it's an existing vision. I, I don't even know where Lane Johnson got an extension in large part, similar to uh, the Tunsil thing where, you know, you, you're leveraged out at some point. Um I don't think I have the the numbers on the new deal. Um, I don't think I do, at least. I, di I didn't put them in if I did. If somebody else did, then they did. But, uh, you know, so I, I don't even know where he's where he's at um, overall. But, yeah, the, the Eagles are basically doing these deals with the, the concept that they'll June 1 the players at some point in time. Um you know, the, the Eagles, the Browns, the 49ers are getting into this now, too. It's probably an overusage of the void years. Saints have been there for a while. You're probably getting to an overuse stage with them. Question's just going to be, does it come back to bite them? Now, th this is a very interesting time with the salary cap because you're going to get a monstrous rise in the salary cap next year. I'm, I'm sure of that. And people are going to look at it and they're going to go crazy but there's no context to really what's going on. Um, we're still deflated um, the cap because of COVID. It still is. So our actual cap this year should not be 208. It should be around 226, 230. So when the cap jumps next year to like 255, 260, it's a, don't get me wrong, that is a big jump. But it, it's not going to be the $50 million jump that it's sold at. But anyway, it's going to take time for contracts to catch up with the cap. Um, so for these contracts that void out in 24 and 25 and maybe 26, you're still probably okay because contracts won't have caught up. The question is going to be when contracts catch up, are you going to be in a bad position because of uh, over pushing some of this dead money? Brian, on your Cooks to Cowboys trade post, can you explain why you value Cooks' one-year salary as his four-year value rather than the entire contract when the value of what is essentially a one-year team option 24 be included into it? Um, so I didn't only because I couldn't see any way that Dallas would have kept him at 18.5. So my thought was when, when that contract was traded for, I said, okay, Dallas is trading for a one-year $12 million deal. Basically, they decided he's worth $12 million. Now, I just uh, talked myself into saying why I'd say 15 but I'll, now I'm using that two-year value because I would see with the way the contract is structured, okay, there's an opportunity to get to the second year. To get to the second year, like if we were doing what I mentioned about scenario analysis, on that old deal, I would say there's probably only a 10% chance he gets into the second year on that old contract. So, you know, that that's why I didn't really use that in there. Mason, uh, two questions. 
Will the NFL allow an uneven proration of a signing bonus, or must they be prorated evenly? No, they have to be prorated evenly. So however many years is going to determine um, the way that they're prorated. Uh, extensions. Signing bonus proration normally counts for that season, but if done in season, does that allow for it to be done off the back end? Um... I'm not sure exactly what you mean by that. So if if a deal is done in November of 2023, the proration will begin in 2023, not in 2024. Is that what you, if that's what you mean? Once the regular season ends, um, it's, it's all the following year. I'm not sure if I'm answering that correctly or not. George, uh, Lions players had significant pay cuts. Harris, three, acquired nine, retired, six, five. How come he required a portion of his base to be a uh, signing bonus, but others didn't? Okay, so uh, this is kind of what I got into before. Um, let me look up Oquara, make sure I didn't miss something there. Yeah, okay, so here's what happened. Um, I believe. I believe. Can always be wrong. I'll update them <laughs> if I'm wrong on these things. Um, they all have a void year. They all have one year remaining. One of the interesting things that I think has kind of happened with contracts, and again, this is getting into the minutia of stuff, all right? And we, we've kind of talked about this a little bit. When players have all these void years, and you have the signing bonus money that's in there. From a technical standpoint, those void years are active years. So imagine if a player retires. That signing bonus money is subject to forfeiture. I remember talking about this about Tony Romo years ago. Okay, that, that bonus money, unless you have it stated, is not subject to forfeiture, is. Because you're retiring from an active contract. Okay. Um, you know, it, as long as you still have an active year. Now, if, the, if you're retiring like a Devin McCourty was, his retirement would have happened after the contract voided. So it wouldn't matter in his case. But in Romo's case, he had active years and void years. So he had multiple years he could have to pay back, which was not in the spirit of his contract. By the same token, you have injury protection in your contracts, and that injury protection extends into void years. Why? Because at the time of your termination, those are legitimate contract years. So I think what we've seen, and I, I don't know what's come of it, I don't know what will come of it, I'm sure it'll go to arbitration, but I think what we've seen is that um, players have been able to go and take these void year deals if they've been hurt, and they're able to go in there, and they're able to potentially get injury protection payments for funny money years. Now, your injury protection money is based on your base salary. So typically nowadays, what you do is you're putting in a base salary that's the minimum um, just to protect yourself from that. Now, you can put in more money um, in other ways. The Lions didn't do that here. So those void years have a dummy base salary of like one, two um, for all those players. So in Aquarius' case, his base this year is just two million. He didn't play last year, so none of his per gamers are uh, likely to be earned. So 
Um, you know, or, or no, he played what, like three couple of games, right? Um, he has a hundred forty-seven thousand should count towards it. So anyway, his cap number should be um, more than double. I'm sorry, less than less than double of his cap number in 2024. So his contract is just treated normally. The other players, um, you know, have like a three million base salary um, is the one. And, you know, obviously three million on the base is much more than the one two on the minimum. So you're going to prorate that difference because of the 50% down rule. Uh, Glasgow has incentives in his contract and he played a lot last year. So those incentives are likely to be earned. Those also count towards the equation. So that causes those to be, um, or at least I believe they do, that should cause them to be prorated uh, as well as any difference in salary as well um, that comes up from there. So that that's the reason why. So in his case, I have him down as having about, um, I don't remember the exact number, 145, 144, 15, something like that in incentives based on playing time. Um, and that that put him over that threshold that that causes that to uh, to happen. S new James Bad Bradbury and Darius Slay signed three year contracts that really are two year contracts. Um, wasn't there more of a market? Do you think they took reasonably less to stay with Philly? I don't think there was a market. There clearly wasn't a market for Slay. Um, you know, I, I think this was, and I think the Eagles made a mistake here. You know, when you move on, you need to move on because the Eagles pivot was to pivot back to Bradbury and now they're overpaying at the position. In my opinion, they're overpaying at the position for some veteran players. It, that's not a good decision. Look, Philadelphia does a lot of good things. This one was not one of them. This was a, you know, it's going to cost a lot to cut him on the cap, even though it's still better off overall. You made the pivot to Bradbury. You should have just stuck with Bradbury and said, you know, you you turned down what we were offering you. You know, go and find something. So, no, the, the, they did not take discounts. This was what the market was. You know, the market is not kind to corners. It's not kind to corners who are older. You know, so uh, I, I think there just wasn't a market for those guys. Eddie, if there was any structure concepts concepts covered in your video about a poison pill contract uh, that you could explain the thought process dive into generally, um, that would be great. Love the videos. Um, I'd have to think about that a little bit. Um, and he has a follow-up here, uh, specifically on the date aspect of it. So my concern on the date, and I'm not 100% certain on this rule here. Um, I think it's the case, but I'm not 100% sure. I think, because I, I know they treat it this way for 30% rule. And I think they treat it this way for D, the Dion Clause. Dion Clause has never come up anymore. But um, I think when you exercise an option bonus... You exercise the option, not the bonus. Um, I think they treat it as like executing a new contract. So if you have a fully guaranteed roster bonus, I think that would cause it to prorate. I think. Um, you know, I know if you restructure and it's already guaranteed that they they would prorate it. But I think the option would trigger the same thing. Now I would 
Um, I, I was kind of tripping over myself when I was going over that section. So I may have gotten some dates wrong in there. <laughs> Who knows? Um, I'd have to go back and actually see it. But the point of it really was that my goal in the deal was to make certain that that roster bonus under no circumstances would prorate. Now, I still have those void years in there. In my mind, you know, leaning into that contract would be crazy. But, you know, my thought was just that, you know, if if that option uh, caused the bonus to prorate, maybe something would work there on the cap to where the, the a team would want to consider it. I can't imagine it, but um, that that was the basic thinking as to why I was doing it that way. I, I just really wanted to make certain that that contract stood as is. Um, you know, in terms of having those payments in there, you know, numbers-wise, I wanted to have stuff that, um, you know, was going to give him that 250 injury protection. I'm just assuming that's the number that he's looking for on a contract. So it's just like, okay, I'm I'm giving you this injury protection. Um, you know, that's there. The option structure, the dates on it. Um, you know, the the other thing with it that you need the option in there is because if 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 worst case scenario, you have to release him because he's not, you know, gonna honor the the idea of renegotiating the deal as soon as it's possible. Um, you know, you, you run a risk there with him. So you need to June one him so you can, you can spread out those hits as well. Um, so by using that option that allows you to have that number down lower. Um, so that was kind of the reason for that. Now, I think that you might actually be able to renegotiate the deal ahead of time. I don't know if you really have to wait until after the end of the regular season, so what you, you can't do is you can't manipulate the cap number in the first year. So I think in that contract, I had it at like 18.7. You can't bring it down. So that number has to stay constant. But I think as long as you don't reduce that number. Sorry, I had to make a beer run there. Uh, I had to get my fridge fixed down here. But, uh, I need to get a new one. I need to get a new beer fridge. Um, so I don't have to go upstairs to get uh, drinks every now and then. But uh, in the middle of the question here, I think, um, you know, what I was saying here is that, excuse me, you might not actually have to wait um, until after the regular season to uh, redo the deal. So now you would know better. You're going to have the uh, the keener legal eye um, than I would on this. So you, you can check this out. And, you know, I don't even know that the, the NFL makes up rules as they go along. So I don't even know if this contract would be valid. But one of the thoughts that I had when doing this, all right, um, I didn't bring it up in the video, but let, let's say the number that I came up with just off the top of my head is 330 or 350 million Um over that period of time, because the NFL includes those void years as technically active years of the contract, even though you're not allowed to renegotiate a deal, I think you're not allowed to renegotiate the deal provided that it doesn't reduce the salary in the contract. Uh, I know you definitely can't for the first year. That That's set in stone. But 
if I have a $350 million contract and that had, uh, I don't remember how many void years I had in there. Um, at three, right? Three void years. So it was a six-year deal. Six years, three voids. So what if I wanted to do a legitimate five-year deal with him? So the minute that the Ravens don't match, I say, okay, let's redo the deal. We have to keep year one as is. That's that's set in stone. We can't change that. Um, you know, we, we can up the signing bonus and accordingly decrease the, the base salary as long as our uh, first year cap hit is over what I had um, in the video, you know, 18-7-ish or so. But even though I'm not going to pay him $350 million or whatever silly number that I had in there over six years, what if I did a five-year deal for $250 million and then I put a void year in there or two that carried um, roster bonuses and a minimum base salary that were like $100 million a year? Well, that would mean I didn't reduce the salary in the contract. So... You know, it might be a technicality. And, uh, you know, if you listen to it, why don't you check it out and get back to me on it, and, you know, on Twitter or email me or whatever, you can DM or email, um, you know, and then maybe that, that could be an interesting topic to look at. Uh, if a contract like that could go through, based on the language that's in the CBA and the way they define it, could I use these void years to technically not... Um, decrease the salary of the deal assuming the length of my contract is the same and the total salary in there is the same through the use of one dummy year to bring all those other numbers up you know or in my initial offer i just put in a million uh void years in there you know eight ten however many just so my salary will never be reduced <laughs> um you know can i do that I might be able to, in which case then I could have my cake and eat it too because I can do my deal, get the Ravens to not match it, and then a week later go and do the regular contract with a funny money here and there to make sure that I still comply with the rules. Might not be in the spirit of the rules, um, but I think with what they have in there, it might be. Uh, but that would be something to consider if that's the case. And I, I know I didn't do that in the video or really talk about it, but now I'm talking about it here, um, you know, that might be something to look into. Anyway, it, you know, you just look for ways to exploit the stuff and you, know, you find out then after the fact. I haven't had anyone say it yet, but I'm sure at some point you get an email where someone will go, that's a really creative idea, but <laughs> you know, I'll, get the, I'll get the text message from somebody on it. Um, and I'll see if I, if I hear anything on it, uh, I'll let everybody know, but uh, anyway, why don't you look into that a little bit? Look in the CBA, look under the sections on the uh, offer sheets, franchise players, and the rules that uh, apply to it, and give me your interpretation, I think, on it. Uh, is the Mahomes restructure negligible for the Chiefs' cap situation forward, and what could the Jones extension look like? Um, man, I don't even remember. How much did Mahomes restructure? Was it just the, whatever his roster bonus was? Um... I think it was pretty negligible, but let me just look it up. Mahomes, his restructure was twelve million. Oh, they didn't even do the whole roster bonus; they just did a portion. Yeah, it, it was just to to get enough money to do whatever they needed to do at that point in time. Um, it was just you know, if you don't do it, it's completely lost to you. Um, 
so I think they just did it just to have enough. You know that that gives them the, right now they're at about five million in cap space. Um, Chris Jones, you know that that's an interesting one. Um, I would guess another four year deal. Depends on where all these other players come in. You know he shouldn't be in a rush to do it. Uh, I would say that the the bigger rush should be on Kansas City's end, assuming Kansas City is willing to do it. Uh, Hargrave coming in. Hargrave's contract is probably the worst contract in free agency. Hargrave coming in where he did is is probably a, a major negative um, for Kansas City if they're they're doing the Jones thing. I would say if you know Hargrave is coming in at twenty. Um, or 21, I, I would say that should push Chris Jones up to that 26, 27, and um, maybe even higher. You know, I, I'm not sure um, where I would put that. You know, it's he's played incredibly well. Um, what year did Aaron Donald sign his extension? Aaron Donald signed in 2018. Chris Jones was, at the time, $2.5 million a year less than him. I don't remember who else had signed in that point in time. Um, there were other aspects of the Chris Jones contract that are very different than someone like a Donald, but... Just in terms of annual value. You know what? I, I think if I was him, and this you're not gonna get a deal done with Kansas City, I think, if you do this, but based on where Hargrave is at, based on where Donald is at, I think I'd be looking for twenty eight to twenty nine a year. If I was pegged in some way, shape, or form to Donald the last time, that's where I should be right now to be pegged at the same level. Um, so I think that's what I'd probably look for. Rahini, uh, will Baltimore need to match every aspect of an offer from a different team for Lamar? Like if the other team has a no trade or a no tag, would Baltimore need to match that? I believe they have to match a no trade. They do not have to match a no tag. Um, what the league did not want to have happen was to have situations where Teams did a one-year contract with a no-tag provision attached to it. Um, so it, that one is not considered a principal term. I think everything else is. If you say that it's a $700 million signing bonus, I believe they have to match that. Um, they can negotiate different terms, but I think the terms have to be considered... Uh, I think the phrase is not less favorable um, to the player. So you, you would have to be able to prove that uh, a change is in no way harming the player. Um, you know. Dave, no NFL team will make an offer to Lamar. Come on, maybe you could think of a package that the Ravens would not match. Um, so anyway, I, check out the video. <laughs> um, that's the best I could come up with. Uh, and how desperate is Woody that he would not make an offer for Lamar if he can't get Aaron Rodgers? I don't know. I, I don't... So, here's the thing. Aaron Rodgers has... And Aaron Rodgers had an awesome career. Alright, so I'm, I, I don't even want to compare the careers of the two. Um, 
I think that there is a lot of negativity towards Lamar Jackson because of the style of play. Uh, I think there's a lot of people that don't think he can throw the ball. Um, I think there's a lot of people that don't think his body will hold up playing the way that he plays. So I don't know if Woody would actually look at getting Lamar Jackson as a big like public relations win. Um, I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure if he would jump into that or not. Uh, I would I would rather have, given the contracts and the ages, I'd rather take the, the risks that are associated with Lamar Jackson excuse me, than um, taking Aaron Rodgers. You know, I do think that there is some legitimacy to the injury risks. We don't know... In t- obviously, you can throw the football. Um, we don't know about running maybe necessarily the type of offenses that you're used to running, but he's had nobody to work with there. I mean, they've had Mark Andrews, and that's it. You know, the Ravens' skill players are terrible. Um, you know, so he'd, he'd be coming into better talent that he'd be playing with. But I, I don't know. I, I'm not sure if uh, Jackson checks enough of the boxes that um, Woody would just go nuts for. Double nickel. Explain why Aaron Rodgers' contract at two one oh nine is awful in a world where Daniel Jones gets two eighty two. Um, well, Daniel Jones' contract is terrible. Um, number one, but the the other reason why is in Daniel Jones's case. Okay, there is potential. I'm not saying it's good potential. I would have never done the deal they did, um, but there's potential that you're getting a four year contract out of him. Aaron Rodgers, you might just get a one. You may just get a two. You're not getting a three. You're not getting a four. You have a market where your top quarterback right now is Aaron Rodgers in terms of salary. So the market's determined that your top player is worth $50 million a year, give or take a little bit. So you're paying 55 for a player who, in theory, is worth 50 That doesn't make a lot of sense. Daniel Jones, you're paying 40 for a player that the market says is worth $40. Um, you know, so... It's unless you want to believe um, that Aaron Rodgers is worth sixty-five million a year or something like that, seventy million a year. That contract is not a good contract. You know, Jones's deal is not good, but if you're bullish on Daniel Jones, um, you know you can make a logical case that forty million dollars a year today will be worth 42 next year. It'll be worth 44 the year after that and 46 the following season. You can't make a case that Aaron Rodgers' worth is going to, um, you know, jump from 50 to 52 to 54 to 60. It, it, there's just not, it, it's just, if your opinion is he's worth 60 or 70, then that's fine. Then, then it's not terrible. Um but if you peg him to the market, I mean, it's it's not good. Um, Alex, what is Hopkins' cap number if he gets traded, and who do you think he goes to? Um, so there were some questions. I don't know why people were making a big deal out of it. We've, we've had this number for a while. Uh, DeAndre Hopkins' number, dead number, if traded...
So his debt, if he gets traded, is 21077 and a team would have to pick up 19.45 this year, 14.915 the next year. They would probably look to redo his contract. Um, in fact, they'd probably have to redo his contract. You know, at, at a $19 million number, you know, the only teams that could afford him right now are the Bears, who wouldn't want him, the Panthers, who knows, um, the Lions, Cardinals who have them, the Packers barely, the Texans barely, the Falcons barely, the Colts barely. I mean, nobody could even afford him at that number. And you have to be able to afford him on the day of the trade. So he would have to redo a deal for less money with Arizona to facilitate a trade. You know, I, I don't know what the relationship is. Um, you know, and obviously they, they just traded for more. But I, I would say if he's willing to, um, you know, not play for necessarily a ton, you know, I think the Browns would make the most sense, um, you know, for him. But I don't know. You know, he's an older player. I, I, I'm, I don't know. He's still very good. Let's put him on the Saints. Saints do wild stuff. Uh, Baba, you like Dak's contract structure from a player's point of view. Do you think Herbert and Burrow can get similar structures? Burrow, definitely not. Now, Burrow may get a big money up front like Dak did. In that in that sense, yes, but not the not the, the guaranteed protection. I don't think he'll get the years. I don't think Herbert will get the years either. I, so I, I don't think either of those guys will get Dak's um, structure and short contract length. Greetings from Copenhagen. Look at that. We've got reach in Denmark. Is there any scenario where it would make sense to front load a contract so the cap hit as biggest at the beginning of the contract period? Sure. You know, I think San Francisco did a good job of that with Jimmy Garoppolo. You know, if you are going to sign a player, particularly particularly at quarterback, um, now maybe Derek Carr is not a good example because he's older. But, you know, one of the things that I suggested with Lamar Jackson when I thought Atlanta would get involved Use all your cap room on Lamar Jackson this year. You know, it's uh, $80 million, for example. Ravens can't match that. You basically are going to sacrifice the year for the most part. But then you're going to have, you know, for yourself a quarterback who is a $50 million player at cap hits of like 35 to $40 million a year. So... I think it makes a lot of sense because we get into these situations, I think at least in the league, where the veteran quarterback contract does become in some ways prohibitive. You know, unless, unless the guy is like a Mahomes type where it's just ridiculously good. And even still, we, we don't know where things will go over time. Um, the, the typical contract structure that we have often is, you know, similar to Josh Allen's or Mahomes, you know, where you have, like, let, let me pull up Josh Allen's numbers. You know, Josh Allen's cap hits were 10 to 16-4, 18-6, 47-56, 52-45-41. There's a time where these numbers, now his number would have been higher this year. They, they restructured it to get it down to the 18-6. There's a time 
where those numbers are going to be prohibitive for the team. I don't know when it'll be. And obviously there's going to be that jump in the cap, but these deals weren't designed for that. It's almost like for the negative side that COVID was, this is almost like lucking into the jackpot for probably a two-year period while everybody else adjusts up. But, um, you know, these contracts can become an albatross for you, especially for other players where the deals are shorter term than these guys. One of the ways that you can combat that is instead of doing that type of contract structure, 10, 16, 18, you know, 47, 50, 50, 50, you can do something where your front end of those deals is a lot higher. Will you sacrifice a year? You might. But in some cases, it might actually even be worthwhile. Like when the 49ers did it with Garoppolo, it made a lot of sense. The 49ers really weren't ready to compete. At least I didn't think they were. Um, And you basically take the approach, okay, we're slowly building. We're going to build around this. But we're going to take the the, the worst costs of it off the table now. And that's going to give us a better chance over the next four, five, six years to be competitive and to still be able to be active in free agency, um, you know, and do some things with our team. Because the cash is basically the same. It's just the way that you're accounting for it. Most front offices don't have, um, I don't think they have that that kind of foresight and I don't think they don't have that patience you know it's like very few teams just take cap room earmark it and say okay we're carrying this over to next year you know Cleveland did a very good job of that last year they had a ton of cap room and they knew you know Watson was going to be suspended most of the year so it was almost like well you know if we spend it all what are we spending it for so they carried it over to this year to help offset some of the costs that they have so they could spend more this year when they knew they'd have Watson for a full season. Um, I always hate using Watson examples because of all the stuff with him, but I think that's how you have to look sometimes at um, what teams can do. But most teams don't have that patience. Um, you know, the Jets have done a good job, I think, of not going crazy with the contract restructures until they know they have Aaron Rodgers. Um, But in theory, they could have and just held on to the money to carry it over. It's the same impact, but I don't think they would have. I think at some point you just get antsy and you're like, well, we've got all this cap room. You got to use it. Uh, Roy Lee, if the Cardinals are able to trade DeAndre Hopkins, they still have 21 go against the cap, or does that go away? Nope, that's a sunk cost. Vin, if you have an owner that is willing to spend more cash, have a bigger budget, how much realistically over the cap advantage can you create versus teams spending around the minimum? Um, I think over the long term, you can create a pretty big advantage if you have a good front office like the Eagles do. Um you will land yourself probably in a short-term problem, um, you know, like Atlanta, like Carolina. Um, but again, if you have a smart front office, it's probably just a one-year issue versus those teams that became like just, you know, being stuck in the quicksand because they never wanted to take a step back and uh, try to get things in order. 
But if you can take risks and you can make mistakes, you're always going to be in a better position. Ricker, what's your opinion on the Giants offseason so far? Uh, I want to build through the draft. Just paid his quarterback $40 million a year. I don't like the Giants offseason. Um, Giants, I, I like I said, I haven't done all the stuff yet. Um, I didn't mind their Waller trade. You know, it's a high risk. Not really even a high risk. It's a high upside trade. I won't say high, terrible risk. Um, Giants have read too much into what happened last season. Jones is a mistake. Tagging Barkley is a mistake. It's like those are not the none of these in my mind are good long term moves for the franchise. Um, You know the stuff they've done. Um, You know some of their signings are okay. The linebacker from the Colts, that's fine. But you know I I think overall it it's too much running it back, too much money. I I don't like what they did. Uh, Connor, how does the depressed tight end market affect Evan Ingram's uh, contract negotiations? Um, I would imagine, and I don't know why he hasn't done it already. At least I don't think he has. He should be signing that tender right now, making sure that thing is locked in. Um, I would say based on how the market has gone. Now, Jacksonville always overspends a lot, so maybe they will here. But uh, I, I think if I think the way that everything is, sh- is shaken out, the... Jonu Smith, David Njoku, Hunter Henry, Darren Waller, all that stuff is just being thrown out right now. Um, so I, I I would say this is a negative for Ingram trying to get a long-term deal. Um, you know, so I, I would imagine that that's a, that's a big negative for him. Make a prediction on Brandon Ayuk. How does he fit in the 49ers future plans? I don't really know that. You know, he, he's an intriguing player. Um I don't know what that would end up looking like. I don't know if that's what they want to do. You know, he, he was their most productive receiver last year. Um, you know, 1,000 yards. You're looking at someone, he's a uh, first-round pick. Um, you know, because of the expectations that come with that, uh, th- there's been some negativity towards him. But, I mean, he did. I'm just pulling up his numbers. I mean, as a rookie, he was at 750. He was 826 and as a second-year player, 1,000 yards last year. Um, so has he been DK Metcalf? No, but, I mean, he's been not bad. Um, so I don't know. You know, he he's a guy, you get into free agency, he's probably going to make a lot of money. Um, and I, I think he probably has a very strong argument, depending on what they want to do right now in San Francisco. Um, I think he has a very strong argument that he's a better player than Debo Samuel. Um, you know, did he have that one crazy year Debo had in 21? No, but other than that, I mean, he's been a better player. So I don't know, you know, they, they bought in on Debo probably too hard off of the one season um, with just numbers that weren't sustainable. So I, I, I don't know what they're going to do, um, but they'll have some decisions to make um, with him. But I, I don't really have a, a prediction on that. But I, I think you know, if it was just looking at it, if it was me, I, I would say that they'll try to find a way to keep him and move on from the others. 
Richard, if a team wants to sign and give up two firsts for Lamar today, do they have to give up this year's and next, or would it be next year and the year thereafter? Maybe a team is waiting until after the draft because they don't want to give up this year's pick. Yeah, I think that's possible. Um, now, this is another one where I don't know on the exact rule interpretation, but I think, I think after the draft, I think it's okay as long as you still have your own pick that you can go ahead and you can do that. I don't think you had to have a pick this year. Um, so, yeah, I think that there is a slim possibility that there could be a team or two lurking out there, po- excuse me, post-draft rather than pre-draft. Derek, how would you have handled the car situation from the start? New regime comes in after Carr's playoff year, probably approached by his agent for new contract. Neutral on how it was handled, but you ended up with Jimmy G as your starter. Uh, they made a mistake. You don't, uh, you know, I, I think what happened there was McDaniel had a bad reputation from Denver, just a really bad one. So they went in there and it was like, okay, we're going to show the locker room. We love everybody. We're going to extend everyone. And it's like, what are you extending Derek Carr for? Let him play for a contract. There was no need to do that. There was no need to do Waller. There was no need to do Renfro. There's no reason to do any of that stuff. You don't know how those players are going to fit in your system. You don't know how any of that's going to work out. Now, they did a contract with Carr that was like no risk, you know, for them. It just made you look bad. You know, but I think, you know, you should have just never even done it. Should have just been, you know, we want to see how things go. You know, Derek's been a great Raider. You know, you get the owner involved with this. You know, Derek's been a great Raider. But, you know, we, we haven't been as successful as we've liked. I know we made the playoffs last year or whatever, blah, blah, blah. Um, we want to see what direction this goes in. You know, the, the coach is really, really excited to have Derek here. Just wants to see how it fits and wants to make sure that it fits with what Derek wants to do. You know, this might give him an opportunity to become a free agent at some point and get that chance. You know, I hate to lose him, but, you know, we owe it to him to where if this does turn into a rebuilding situation, you know, that he's not on a rebuilding team. You know, something like that. But, you know, basically what they did is they ended up paying a couple million extra for Derek Carr, looking bad in terms of public relations, to opt into another contract for Derek Carr. It's a couple million dollars a year less, but it's a guy who's always hurt. You know, Carr is healthy. This is a guy who's always hurt. So, um, yeah, I, I just think they made a mistake from day one with how they handled it. You would be sitting here right now, at the very least, with a third compensatory, um, you know, that you could have gotten for him. Or even as bad as things were last year, you never would have had to bench him. You probably would have tagged him, and maybe you could have gotten a number two for him in a trade. Rowdy, uh, looking at the spend profiles over the coming years, can you determine which teams are all in aggressive and which ones are not? Oh, I'd have to really take a closer look at that. Um, You know, just very quickly looking at it here. The Vikings are all in. I don't understand what they're doing at all. Giants are kind of all in. I don't get that. Dolphins are all in. 49ers are all in. Browns are all in. 
and the Bills. Those, those are the teams I'd probably look at and say they're all in. The Chargers would be the other one. Chargers would be the other one that's kind of all in, I think, on this season. Jason, assuming the Jets get Aaron Rodgers, what kind of dead money do you expect in 25, and how long will it take the Jets to recover from that? Do you think they draft the quarterback in 24? No, not if they have Rodgers, there's no way they're going to be that bad that they can draft a quarterback in 24. Um, I don't anticipate Rodgers behaving with the organization um, in 25, so I think that's a dead money number of like 60. Does that sound about right? Um, so pretty big. Eddie Nils, if Lamar ends up playing somewhere else, what are the Ravens going to do with all their cap space and hardly any restructures yet? Especially as a lot of their money, uh, more highly rated free agency players are gone. Trades are rebuilt. They would be in a full rebuild mode. Um, you know, they the roster itself, you know, it, it's okay. Um, you know, the coach doesn't get enough credit there for what he does. Maybe the quarterback hasn't gotten enough credit either, but coach certainly doesn't. Um, I, I think they would go into a rebuilding mode. It, it, it would be a very bad look for them if someone made an offer to Jackson they couldn't match. Uh, David, 2024 preview of fifth-year option players getting extensions and the size of them. That's a topic for another day. Uh, that's a big topic. Um, in the coming weeks, I'll try to get to that. Uh, two questions. Does signing bonus proration have to be evenly distributed across the years? Yes. Uh, does each team have their own contract template where information is typed into the blanks or are there several templates available that all teams choose from? Um, no, I, I would say most teams have a pretty much their own templates that they use. I mean, the, the, the front end of the contracts is all the same. You can see it in the CBA. Um, that's going to be the same for basically everybody. But yeah, they, they, they all have their own structures that they use. It's kind of plug and play. They make up, they make mistakes sometimes in there, um, which is funny when you find out that they do that and they have to refile something or, you know, you'll, you'll see things crossed out because the year is wrong because they reused the contract from the prior year or, um, you know, had something typed in there wrong and, you know, you just want to get it signed. So you're just, uh, you know, making your changes in marker. Um, Joseph, why do teams ever front load contracts? If cap space rolls over, why not just back load and then carry over the savings if you end up wanting it front loaded? So yeah, you know, I mentioned that before, but I think the main reason is because teams just simply don't have that patience. Like if you create $60 million in cap room because you want to sign Lamar Jackson and then you don't get Lamar Jackson, odds are you're going to get impatient and you're going to spend 30 million of it on Ryan Tannehill. And then you're going to go and spend $10 million of it on, I don't know, just some random player. You know, here and there, you'll spend another 15 on another player. You might keep a guy that you were going to cut. You, you end up changing what you're doing because you have that cap space instead of just sticking with a plan and saying, okay, Rogers, Rogers, Rogers. We didn't get Rogers. Let's just save it. You go to plan B, which is, all right, let's let's do whatever we can to bring in Odell Beckham. Well, who do you have throwing him the ball? Uh, Zach Wilson may well resign Joe Flacco. I mean, it's like, what are you doing? That doesn't make any sense, but that's the way it ends up working. Jacob, is there any advantage to extending players before versus after the draft? The Panthers said they'd focus on extending Burns after the draft, and I was wondering why wait, unless they just want their full focus to be on the draft. 
So the reason that they're waiting until after the draft, what uh, a phrase like that means is that they would be willing to shop, excuse me, uh, they'd be willing to shop him during the draft. That's why you're waiting until after the draft. Yes, you're going to sell it as your focus is on the draft. But the main reason why is you are saying we're open for business. Um, If you want to come calling and you want him and you're going to give us something very valuable for him, maybe we'll listen to an offer. So you're not going to negotiate an extension if you're you're considering trading someone. So that that that's really the main reason. The other possibility for a couple of teams would be if they were a team that used the June 1, you know, you're waiting until the summer. Um, you know, because you might have a little bit of a better cap position to be able to do something. Can rookie contracts be designed to pay more out in years 1 and 2 and less than 3 and 4 towards the cap? Would this be a benefit to a team with a lot of cap space? Uh, would the agent let it happen? So, no, you can't do it. The rookie contracts are locked in. So you, you, you can't manipulate those numbers really in any way. JP, which team is most likely to put together an offer sheet for Lamar after the draft? Um, maybe Washington if they got new ownership. Miami did the deal for Tua, so I'm going to guess no. I'm going to guess no on the Buccaneers. I don't see the 49ers. I'm just looking at some of these teams. Um, I don't, I, I'm not crazy on the Jets on it. I don't see... I, I, I don't know who. I mean, maybe the Falcons. I, I, I still think that he makes a, so much sense for the Falcons, but you know maybe, maybe that would be the other team. I'm going to run out of beer. <laughs> Too many questions. Um, oh, wait. Hold on. I think I'm in the same one. Okay, so maybe this won't be as bad as I'm thinking. Uh, still may end up running out of beer. All right, let's see here. Mass Eagle, uh, what's the penalty for a team that isn't cap compliant? I don't even know what the penalties are these days uh, for that stuff. There used to be fines and things like that. I don't think any of that exists anymore. I think basically the the minute that you're going to go over the cap, I, I think they, uh, they'll make you rescind a contract or something. Um, you know, you get the slap on the wrist. They'll make sure that you're cap compliant. Um, you know, there's never been a team that I, I know of that's been over the cap to where that's, or actually, no, there was one, um, Miami, they, that Miami screwed up the rules back in 2010. Um, they released Porter from his contract, not realizing that all the money accelerated into 2009, uh, because that was an uncapped year in 2010. So you, you couldn't push money to then. Um, so they released him and the NFL forced them to put him back on the roster. It didn't matter because, I mean, we were talking February, so it didn't make a difference. But uh, it was still, you know, you release the guy and then you, you have to have it rescinded because of that. Michael, does trading for Rodgers make the Jets that much better? Would they be better off trading for Lamar? So long term, 
you're better off trading, I think, for Jackson. Uh, there's much more value in that, even if his high end is not as good as Aaron Rodgers. So I, I do believe that trading for Rodgers, though, I mean, makes the Jets better. Um, actually, a lot better. You know, but I, I don't have a high starting point for the Jets. Like, if they had Aaron Rodgers last year, Jets probably would have won 11 games. But the Jets were, um, excuse me, they are, the chair is giving me some issues again here. Um, the um, My son just destroyed my chair here with this Fortnite playing. Um, the, uh, you know... It, the team last year wasn't as good as their record, um, but he he would make them better. Um, I, I can't say that that wouldn't you know that that wouldn't be the case. You know, I don't think they'd be a losing team with Aaron Rodgers. I think you're certainly an eight nine win team. I don't know if you're going to have the high end of eleven or twelve wins that a lot of people are going to be predicting, but um, you know, you, you you take the complete green fan blinders off if this is one of the other thirty one teams. You know, I, I think you take a step back and you look at contract and you look at the years that the guy is going to be playing. You know, Lamar Jackson for two ones probably makes a lot more financial sense, uh, just a lot more sense overall than Aaron Rodgers for one or two years at $110 million and whatever you end up giving him, uh, giving the Packers in draft compensation, especially if you end up giving a number one pick uh, or a number two pick. So... You know, it's one of those things where it looks better on paper than it probably really is. And I know people point to Favre, and Favre had that good run at the beginning of it. The Jets didn't give up a lot for Favre, and Favre's salary was not crazy. Um, I have to see where it ranked at the time, but it was probably like 10, 11, 12 million uh, for the one year, which, you know, wasn't small. You know, top of the market at that time was probably... 2008. Uh, that was before Manning. Maybe 13? Um, let me see what the Jets paid Favre. Let me see if I have Favre in here. Brett. Brett Favre. Uh, Favre. Yeah, he was at 12 for the Jets. That was 2008. I don't think Manning got extended. Or was Eli extended at that point? Yeah, Eli wasn't until 2009. That moved it to 16. Um, who else? There's Roethlisberger. He came earlier. Roethlisberger was 2008 as well. So he was at 14.6. And Carson Palmer... Carson Palmer was at 16, but that was a ridiculously long contract. So let, let, let's call the top of the market like 13, 14 million. So he was 12 when, you know, you, you kind of viewed your top quarterbacks as being worth 13, 14, 15. So he, he had a moderate value based on his salary, even though he was only going to be there for a year. Whereas Rodgers, you know, it's a $50 million market and you're talking about a player who's going to make 60 um, you know, that, that, that's kind of the way that you would do that. PJ Cumberland heard the skins are down to like 3 million. That's the commanders now. 
Um, what does each team need to be to, uh, to be able to be under the cap post post draft? Well, you have time for that, right? You, you have plenty of time to manipulate your numbers, pay out or agree to bonuses and restructures. Um, you have plenty of time. So Washington, let's see. Yeah, so right now they're probably right up against the cap. Uh, somebody emailed me about this. I'll, I'll try to email them back with the, the effective cap space calcs that we do. Um, we probably overstate the impact of the rookies, which is true. Um, you know, we usually pull out a 750. Uh, I think we do the same on this chart here, too. Um, the actual impact on them is different. It's going to vary team by team, and it's going to depend on the team roster construction as to what that impact will be. It just ends up becoming like a pain to do it team by team, and we can up the number. Um, I've just always done it this way. It's easiest to explain because otherwise people go in the other direction crazy. So it's almost like it's better to overstate than understate. Um as it would for a couple of teams. But anyway, you know, they're right up there. Um, you know, you, you make a move or two and you'll basically be fine. But they may have to do some stuff. I don't remember if this... I don't think Washington has a June 1, do they? Um, yeah, no, they didn't have a June 1. So, you know, they, they'll have to do something with some of their players. You know, Jonathan Allen, Curtis Samuel, you know, they'll, they'll do something with those contracts to, uh, you know, be able to, to deal with their salary cap stuff. Zach, which contract grade from last year were you the most wrong about? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, wow. Uh, that's so long ago now. <laughs> it feels like forever. I'd have to go back and look at those grades and see. I, I barely even remember the players that were there. I mean, uh, Christian Kirk worked out much better than I thought he would, um, you know, with that number. It's still early in the contract. You know, do you, if, you know, he completely flames out this year, that's a, um, you know, that that that's a different story. Um, who was I really negative on that turned out to be pretty good? Um, I think I was pretty... Dead on with Miller, guys like Jones. Um, well, Zadarius Smith, I had to be way off on. I'm sure I was, like, I don't know what Minnesota's doing. And uh, Smith ended up having a great year. I, I would guess that would be a player. Um, I'm just trying to quickly run through. I'll have to go back and look. I'll, I'll have to see. Um you know, who who I gave good grades to and who I gave bad ones to and ones that uh, kind of outperformed that. But the Kirk one probably is one that he, he was better than I thought he would be. I think it was negative on Robinson's deal, and that ended up being pretty much the case. Uh, Yeah, I can't put myself back in that frame of mind. I'll have to pull up those grades. This year, I didn't even get too crazy with the grades. I did a couple of them, and free agency was so bad. You know, I just couldn't even get into doing them. There there just wasn't interest in my part. Um, I don't think there was interest in anyone's part, 
you know, when I would put the stuff out, we didn't get the same kind of feedback we did from last year. And in large part, it's just because the, the contracts themselves weren't that exciting. So we just kept up with, uh, you know, entering this stuff. But I, I didn't I didn't go as crazy with the grades this year. Uh, Crystal, when is the Packers and Jets trade going to happen? So I talked about this on the uh, Badlands podcast. I think it'll happen after June 1st. If I was a betting man, that's where I'd put the money. I don't think the Jets are going to offer a good enough pick for the Packers to take. Um, so I think that lets the Packers save face if they can get a better pick in 2024. Um, though I do think the Jets got more ammunition out of this Elijah Moore trade. But um, yeah, I, I think it also makes sense for the Packers uh, with their salary cap if they do it after June. And I doubt Rodgers is going to show up for workouts, so it's not like there's that possibility that he's somehow going to get hurt during workouts that's going to lock him into Green Bay for the year. So I think it'll be after June. Robert, can the Packers and Jets get this deal done already? What's the holdup? I don't know the holdup, but it sure sounds like it's trade compensation. I'm sure the Packers are looking for a one and the Jets are not. Uh, Christopher, which teams have the most dead year contract totals? Um, all right, let's take a look. Cap space. So this year, the Buccaneers lead the way with 75.3 million. Uh, the Eagles, 54.7. The Rams, 52.7. The Panthers, 50.9. And then you have a major drop until the Titans, and that number is going to grow for them at 36.8. Followed by the Texans at 30.2. So it's really four. It'll end up being five teams that are going to have excessive dead money. And, you know, usually the teams with excessive numbers don't do very well. Um, most people will expect the Eagles to do well. I think there's some people who expect the Rams to do well, even though they've added like nobody this year. Um, but I think the assumption is that people are going to look at them as being healthy. Um, you know, often these teams just completely suck. So probably a good chance these teams will uh, completely suck. But those are your uh, leaders in dead money so far this year. Uh, why doesn't John Feliciano count towards the Giants' loss-free agents? Um, did they cut him? Let's see. don't know the answer to that. Um, let me take a quick look here. Um, I think he counts. Uh, I, I think where Nick has him is just that he's below the cutoff um, for what you would get. So, for example, uh, Dan Feeney he has as the lowest qualifier, I think. Um, where is he on the Jets? I think he got like a $3 million contract from Miami. 3-2-5. So I, I think the the numbers that he's at, um, you know, where, where they have cutoffs, I think is not enough to qualify, um, you know, for a pick. And then on top of that, the Giants... you know, right now would be in the gained column anyway. Uh, you know, they gained more than they lost. So I think that's the reason for that one. Oh, let's see here. 
Could the Jets fit Hopkins trade in the cap with Rodgers? Yeah, the, the Jets still have a lot of flexibility if they want to do that. Mazer, Lions keep adding void years to contracts. Bad move or okay with the cap rising? No, the Lions are fine with it. The, the Lions just throw one void year on all their deals. So it, it's more like a protection for themselves. So I, I think... Um, I think what they're doing is okay because it's just a one-year deferral, and you know you, you're leaving that year in there if you have to restructure, and you you know um, you're just making it easy to do. So I, I think they're fine with what they're doing. Uh, Richard, if a team wanted to sign Lamar today and Baltimore doesn't match, are the two first-round picks 23, 24, 24, or 25? If it's this year, maybe that's why teams are waiting. New England doesn't want to give up 10, but maybe with 24 and 25. Um, so yeah, it has to be 23 and 24. So if you do it post-draft, it's 24, 25. So as, uh, the person suggested before in a question, um, I would say that it's possible that you could see some action post-draft. Um, I don't know if New England would do it or not, but maybe they would. Um, but yeah, it, it's a possibility. Jets liftoff. Will we get a shift to shorter-term contracts, or will that only be available to elite players such as Laramie Tunsil? Um, I think it depends. You know, we, we get so caught up sometimes in the annual value of deals and more so in the guarantee on a deal. Sometimes, now in his case it wasn't, but sometimes, you know, if, if you're at a different position, you're not going to get that crazy-sounding guarantee if you do the three-year deal. And sometimes for an agent, that's not the best thing in the world. Sometimes for the players, it's not the best thing in the world. But, um, you know, if you're looking for that splash, sometimes you don't get that when you do that three-year contract. You're not going to get as much money maybe in year one. You're not going to get as much of a guarantee. And you're going to get criticism for that, even though, again, what's in the best long-term interest for the player, and it depends on position, but for many, it's that three-year deal to get you that chance when you're still 27, 28, maybe 29 years old to get another deal. Do you think the Jets could drag the Rodgers talks after the draft to avoid giving 2023 picks? Yeah, I think that's possible. I think it's both sides that uh, that could work for. If we had void years, can we get Marquise Noel another year of eligibility? Uh, probably not. Uh, Bob Morris, uh, we got some basketball coming in there. Uh, can you explain the rule about guaranteed salary going into escrow? Seems like I see different rules about it, including something about a rule dating back to the 50s. So basically the escrow rules are something that were put in place at a time when it made sense. You know, um, Teams necessarily, you didn't know if they would, you know, still be around. You didn't know if they were going to have the money to pay out contracts, if they were guaranteeing money. Um, the concept of guarantees outside of the signing bonus was not necessarily a real thing. It was something that was there, but uh, uh, mainly for rookies, not as much for veteran players. Um, you know, so you, you had a set aside to basically say, okay you go out of business or you're not making enough money, this money is there so the players aren't, you know, caught, you know, having to chase you is like as if they're a, uh, you know, creditor in a bankruptcy proceeding or something. 
Um, obviously, none of that stuff holds true anymore. But um, you know that that was that's the logic or the reason behind this rule. Um, basically, what they do is there's a certain date they determine how much money is guaranteed, and based on that, they determine a figure um, that you need to put in escrow every year. I believe it's just based on future year salaries. So in other words, like if you have a guarantee for 2023, I don't think that counts towards it because obviously you're still in business in 2023. So you're going to pay out your signing bonus. You're going to pay out your P5. So I, I think that's how it works. Again, I'm not 100% certain, but I think that's how it works. Um, there's different rules that apply there. Like you, you don't use the full, um, maybe the full guarantee. It's a percentage of the contract and they take... Uh, 15 million off total, I think. I'm just going to off the top of my head um, as to how they, they come up with the number. So, you know, th there's a couple different things in there. I don't really pay that much attention to it. Um, you know, the, the actual mechanics of how it works. And they don't do a great job of really explaining the rules and the dates and all that kind of stuff. Um, but essentially, it, it's all about your future salaries that you might owe to a player uh, that have to be put aside into uh, these different types of accounts. Uh, what teams are poised to walk into an extended cap hangover like the Saints? Um, man, the Saints are unique. You know, if the Eagles hit a patch where everything starts going bad, the Eagles would wind up in that position. Um... I don't think Minnesota's in an extended position. Miami? I don't, e I, don't, I don't even know if Miami's in an extended position like those teams. Like teams where they're going to deal with this for like a couple of years in a row. Um, I mean, Arizona, but they're probably already kind of at their worst and they have a lot of cap room this year, but they're probably at their worst spot. Chargers are going to run a risk. Rams are going to run a risk, but I you could see the Rams have gone basically into hibernation this year. So they're, they're trying to make sure that that doesn't happen. I wouldn't be stunned if it in some way, shape, or form happens to the Bills. Um... The Bills are aware of it, but they're still, they, they kind of have that can't help themselves mentality at times. So maybe. 49ers are doing some risky things too, but I think they'll be okay. They're pretty smart front office. Um, but yeah, you don't have, you don't. Yeah, you you don't have like uh, a bunch of those teams that are there other than the Eagles. The Eagles are the one. If the if the stuff comes up bad for them, and the corner signings to me are bad for them, doing two. You can do one, but I think doing two is a bad one. Um, that's the team because of the way they have it. everything just kind of prorated out um, there. You know, some of them aren't going to work, but you need some of them to. And, you know, the odds are that some won't, some will. But if they if they really come up short and nothing works out, you know, they're, they're going to they're gonna be in a bad way. Um, 
with that. But, you know, on the other side of things, yeah, I, I guess you look at the Vikings, look at the Dolphins, look at the, uh, the Bills, um, and look at the Chargers. And those are the teams that probably have the potential right now. Um, they're not there yet. They're, they're, they're not at the, the levels of the Saints and the Falcons and the Panthers. Um, you know, that those teams have been the last couple of years. But, you know, those are the teams you probably want to keep an eye on to see what they do in the future. Uh, let's see. How do you see the Bears hitting cash spending minimums that they're subject to in 23? I haven't uh, redone those numbers since uh, end of free agency. I'm sorry, since the start of free agency. So I'd have to see how much they spent so far to see where they're at. But, you know, they'll, they'll extend some players. Um, and they can front load if they really were in a bad way. I, I don't think they will be. You know, they're going to add a lot in the draft. Um, if they were really in a bad way, they, they could take, um, you know, like Moore's contract next year, for example, and just pay a signing, pay a signing bonus, um, you know, in February just to make it count instead of paying him regular salary. So they, they, they have options. Um, can Jonah Williams forgo some of his 12-6 option salary cap hit for an opportunity to play elsewhere, perhaps to a fake extension with his new team to spread the cap across two years with voids? Um, I mean, he can give up money if he wants to give up money. Uh, in terms of the void years, yeah, he could do that. Really, it just boils down to what a team thinks he's worth. Yeah, if a team thinks he's worth a 12-6 gamble, they're going to pay him the 12-6. But yeah, they, they could void it out to um, make it a little bit easier on their salary cap for the year. That That is absolutely allowed. Um, but I, if I were him, I wouldn't take a, a pay cut um, you know, to, to go to a team where maybe I wouldn't have to compete for a job. He hasn't really been good, but he plays a valuable position. So I, I think teams would probably be willing, willing to pay it. Um, I guess, I don't know, but yeah, but you can do, you can do void years if all your concern is just the cap hit that you can do. Uh, it's way early, but what teams are going to have a 2024 cap hangover? So that's the kind of topic I was talking about next week. Um, but it's the saints, you know, and again, you got to look to see how, you know, how, maxed out some of these teams are but it's probably the saints browns chargers dolphins bills potentially the broncos um 49ers the, the, those are your teams that you're probably going to look at and maybe the eagles I, I, i'm not sure on that one uh but i would say it's those other those other teams are the ones you want to look at Colin, can you please explain why uh, Payne's contract was initially shown on OTC as not having a void year? Was that about how it was reported, or did the contract get changed? Um, okay, where was the initial report on Payne? Was that Florio? I don't remember. Um, I think it was Florio. Florio usually doesn't get the void years. He's, he's usually just kind of into the guarantee structure is more his thing. Um, I believe he was the first to get the details on it, though he got them wrong. So I, I don't, and I don't mean that like he got it wrong. He, he had the breakdown correct and he doesn't get into the void years, but I think he specifically did give a cap number. 
Now, maybe he calculated that cap number. It sounded, though, like somebody gave him the cap number. Like, gave him, like, this is the savings on the deal. And obviously, that wasn't the case. So, there's a chance that that's another one of those contracts that was agreed to in principle. And then when pen came to paper, the commanders realized they needed more cap room, so they added a void year. Um but it, it's it, it's one of those two, I, and I, I don't know the answer to that one. I, I don't know if that was um, them switching it up later on, or if that was um, you know just something that happened after the fact. Let's see. Um, yeah, so they have it too. Um, I'm just seeing, so you, you know where they grabbed it from, but, uh, but yeah, that, that's why it was, it was the, the initial reports did not include a void year and there, there is a void year in the deal. Okay. I think this is the last question is Fred Warner, other team control in 2025. I don't understand the void language. If not, how will the team be competitive given his cap hits? Uh, let's take a look. Fred Warner. I think this is it. I'll pull up to make sure I don't have any other questions. Fred Warner is under contract. Yeah, he's under contract. So his contract doesn't void out until 2027. Um, I don't have a date on that. I'll have to look. It's probably a fifth-day waiver period. I'll have to see if I can find it. Usually I have those. I probably just didn't note it. Um, so basically what he has is he has a... Um, he has a very old school contract where there is an option buyback. Like he can void. I, I think the way it works is he can void his deal out and then they can buy it back for three, six. It's a, I forget exactly how that works out. Um, so I, maybe that's what you're talking about, but no, his, his contract is designed to run through 2026. So I think they should be, um, you know that he'll be under contract, and they'll have to decide what they want to do. Um, you know, with him from a, a salary cap standpoint. All right, let me take one last look here and see if there is any other questions. Let me look at my email. Don't see anything. Let's see what this is. Um, okay, I think that's it. Yeah, I'm sorry if I missed anything, um, but I think that's it based on what I'm seeing here. So uh, I think that is time for me to wrap it up, which is pretty good because I'm getting pretty tired. It's uh, midnight now, so um, close to midnight. So this has been a uh, pretty long one. Um, that we've gone through. So uh, we'll see. Probably be shorter next week, but uh, hopefully I'll be back next week with more of a free agency overview. And um, hopefully I'll get that thing out tomorrow where we go over some of the valuation charts. I uh, can't guarantee it though. If it's not tomorrow, it probably won't be until the middle of the week when I'll get some time to be able to do that. But uh, we'll see if I can sneak that in. Um, hopefully sometime soon. Uh, so everybody have a great week, and I will talk to you all again soon.